Now I want to jump to a really complex concept that is antithetical to almost every conventional medical person. And that is the concept of reductive stress. And I actually remember viewing a podcast you were on with uh, Tucker Goodrich uh, and Kate Shanahan, um, where you were discussing this concept. And Kate's a pretty sharp woman. She's one of the first people I ever interviewed about the dangers of uh, linoleic acid. But she just couldn't get her head behind this concept. She was just adamantly opposed to reductive stress as a concept, even. And she didn't believe it. Didn't believe it. So I think we need to, it would be really helpful to understand this because this is really mind bending. And it, it's, it, it absolutely turned my world upside down once I understood this thing with respect to what I thought and believed to be the truth about really the fundamental way that we age in an accelerated fashion. You know, it's believed to be oxidative stress uh, and then further refined to be oxidative stress in the mitochondria. And yes, because that's where, where most of it occurs. But I, when I wrote my book, Fat for Fuel, I was totally mixed up. I thought fat was the cleanest fuel. And it turns out, no, the, the cleanest fuel is when you have reductive stress minimized. Because reductive stress, now first we'll, we'll define it in a moment, but it actually is what causes oxidative stress. Yep. So to, to understand it, you have to understand what is oxidation and what is reduction. So why don't we go over this simply? Because this is a complex topic and I suspect many of you will need to listen to this a few times to get it, or you can just fast forward if you don't want to. But in my view, it is really foundational to understanding what's going on. And once you understand how to combine these other components, you can easily uh, refute any of the arguments that people have against us because it's so solid and really explains the, the, the fundamental sub-molecular, subcellular, molecular level in the mitochondria, what's going on and why it's going on. And it's and it's pretty straightforward once you understand the basic concept. So uh, I guess we can start with the rate of living theory, which is really underpinning this whole concept of oxidative stress. Mm-hmm. Currently, pretty much every doctor you pick, you know, uh, try to talk to about aging, they'll tell you that look, the higher your metabolic rate is, which means the quicker the electrons move from from food towards oxygen, which is the final acceptor of electrons, the quicker this process is. Basically, the faster you will age because you will be, there will be higher oxidative stress. You'll be producing a higher amount of reactive oxygen species. But if you look at the actual data, and actually this is even in the medical books, and I send you Wikipedia pages about this, yeah, 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 yeah. it turns out it's the exact opposite. Reactive oxygen species get generated. Yes, they are generated from oxygen, but it's actually when you're not shuttling the electrons fast enough towards oxygen, when these electrons build up in various chunks of this process, whether it's the Krebs cycle or the electron transport chain, and these electrons, which are coming from food, you have to do something with them. And the body has- Let's stop here. What you just said is a profoundly important statement. And I am wondering why this isn't more widely known because I was searching for this information and I never found it. I, I couldn't find it anywhere. I was trying to find out where most of these ROS generated in the mitochondria, and and it's not clear. But what if you understand the concept, you can see it. So, how did you understand it, and why? What is what is the reason why this isn't more widely known or certainly accepted? 
Well, I think the reason, the main reason is that basically the, we, if you use the various search engines, they're going to give you what the majority of the websites are writing about. Mm-hmm. Just like the AI, the chat GPT part. If you try mm-hmm. to argue with it on a specific medical topic, it will just argue blindly, I mean, to, to the death, that uh, a specific concept is what medicine says, and no amount of evidence you produce will convince it otherwise. You'll say, this is my model. That's all I understand. So if 99% of the websites in medical uh presentations and studies are saying oxidative stress happens only in the con- in the context of high oxidative metabolism then if you search google then the first 5 or 10 pages will be basically statements along that line but if you look at this what a reactive oxygen species is you will see that it's actually oxygen that has been reduced in other words oxygen that has gained an electron now Electron by its by its nature is a reductive species, right? Basically, we a food is a donor a donor of electrons, a reductant. Oxygen is an acceptor of electrons, an oxidant. So if you have a buildup of electrons, this means that you're in a state of excessive reduction, or at least higher than optimal. So these electrons have to do something. The body has to do something with them. You're giving the body electrons either from food or through lipolysis or the cortisol generating you know, amino acids from your muscles. Ultimately, the, all of these things get converted to energy. And the way energy works is it's a flow of electrons. So like electrons ideally should be paired at the very end with oxygen through complex four of the electron transport chain. And if that does not happen, then oxygen, molecular oxygen floating around, these electrons can actually attack it and reduce it by an electron or two and generate these very reactive right. species. Well, let, let's stop here because you know this is complex. And you said these electrons floating around. So this, yeah. I'm assuming these are floating around in the tree because there's essentially five complex. Well, they're moving. I shouldn't say floating. They're actually moving along the steps of the of, right. so of the metabolic one chain. One to two yeah. to three yes. to four yes. to five. Yes. And in that process. It, and you'll go in in a moment. If you don't have those cofactors, it gets right. stopped. Exactly. And backwards. Exactly. So if they can go forward, they can build up. And if they when they build up to a certain point where it becomes toxic for that specific step, the step will say, I have too many. Send them backwards, right? And then by sending them backwards, basically, they can interact with the molecular oxygen, which is always there, but it's mm-hmm. only useful if it's used at the last step, which is the cytochrome C oxidase. At any other point, oxygen coming into interaction with these electrons is asking for trouble. It's basically like the similar to the peroxidation of the polyunsaturated fats. You can either degrade them oxidatively, which is still not preferable because we're going to talk about oxidative stress, reductive stress, right? But they can, if they don't get properly metabolized, they can get attacked by these reactive oxygen species and and, and create a degenerative uh, free radical or, or like a, or, or basically an, a toxic aldehyde. So the same thing happens with these electrons. When they're not meeting the oxygen at the very end, they build up at complex one or three usually, right? And then this excessive buildup of electrons, the body has to do something with it. And when it loses control, when these electrons build up too much, then they start leaking through the mitochondrial membrane and start combining with molecular oxygen and creating reactive oxygen species. However, these oxygen species are not oxidative. They're not oxidizing agents anymore. They have accepted either one or two electrons, so they're actually reductive species. So the hydroxyl radical, which is the most 
powerful one we produce. And the superoxide anion, which combined these two are probably responsible for the 90% of the reactive oxygen species. Both of these are reductive agents. There are one electron reductive agents. So they can attack the DNA in our body. They can attack the polyunsaturated fats. They can attack various enzymes, including the, the, the actual um, electron transport chain enzymes that are there or the cardiolipin, which is part of uh, the uh, uh, electrotransport chain four, right? But they're not oxidants well, themselves. I thought a cardi I thought cardiolipin was a fatty acid embedded in the inner mitochondrial membrane, and it, it, it's not. It's part of it, it's part of complex, complex four. I thought I thought it was part of the cristae that that can yes. Yes, but, but complex four cannot work without combining with cardiolipin. So cardiolipin okay. is crucial to the final step of of uh, oxidizing cytochrome, which is being okay. reduced by complex three, and and so yeah. So without cardiolipin, complex four will not work. Um, so yes, not not fused with it, but the final step of accepting the reduced cytochrome C from complex three and oxidizing it to complex four requires cardiolipin as present. And cardiolipin, since lipin is the, in the name, can be composed is composed of lipids. And if we eat too much puffer, you get too much puffer in the cardiolipin. And all of these reactive oxygen species, they're highly reactive. But they're not oxidants. They're actually a reduced form of oxygen. So they, they're highily reactive. They can cause a lot of a, a, a wreak a lot of havoc. But the very reason they're present there is because there was an excess of electrons to start with. And an excess of electrons is by definition a reductive state, right? That that is at the core. So having a high amount of excess unpaired electrons means you were in a reductive state or reductive stress, if you want to call it, right? And only then you can have the oxidative stress, I mean, the, the creation of the reactive oxygen species, which for some reason became termed oxidative stress, as if it was the oxygen causing this. It's not the oxygen causing this. Oxygen by itself floating around in the mitochondria does not do much damage as long as the electrons, in other words, the re the reductants, are flowing along the line. As, as uh, It's just as like the, the carbs in diabetes. Carbs are getting un not, unfairly vilified. They're just, they're just like an innocent bystander. You know, so the bystander, yeah. The, the damage that's going on. But I, I just want you to highlight, I mean, you sent me this email this morning that my mind was just spinning because I never knew this was true. Is is this, when when the, these co-factors, you're going to talk, talk about that next in a moment, they're diminished and the electrons can't flow all the way to complex four to get attached to oxygen. That's like 0.1% ROS project, 0.1%. Yeah. Whereas if it goes backwards, reverse flow and blocked, it's three to four percent. So this is in fact, such a massively important concept to get. Yeah. So the higher your metabolic rate, the the more easily these electrons flow from food to oxygen, the less oxidative stress. I know it's a misnomer, but let's use it. The less okay. oxidative stress you're going to have. The slower your metabolic rate, for whatever reason, you know, this this immediately translates into buildup of these electrons, combining with oxygen and creating these reactive oxygen species, which for some reason medicine has called oxidative stress it's not oxidative it's a it's it's a damage caused by excessive state of reduction right it's too many electrons that are unpaired um and uh and as, as the even the wikipedia articles that i sent you said that the, the determining factor for most of the creation of the reactive oxygen species is the nadh to the nad ratio nadh being the reduced form nad plus being the oxidized form so this ratio, which also controls the speed of metabolism of carbohydrates because the rate-limiting step is pyruvate hydrogenase, 
when you're in the oxidized state, in other words, NAD plus predominates, then pyrovidocondrogenase works well. And then basically these electrons start flowing through the Krebs cycle and also the electron transport chain emitting oxygen. When NADH predominates, which means you have too many electrons, that's what NAD does. It accepts the hydrogen, so now it's a carrying of extra electron. So when you have too much NADH, means you have too many electrons that are not meeting oxygen properly. This buildup of electrons creates this these bottlenecks, right? In a complex one or complex three, mostly. I mean, it can happen in the other ones as well. Um, and then something has to happen with these electrons. Two things can happen actually. One is increased react, uh, increased synthesis of the reaction reactive oxygen species. Second is the body uses these extra electrons to synthesize fats. So you can view um, obesity or at least extreme obesity as a desperate mechanism to get rid of electrons that are coming from food but are not getting properly. In other words, you're not combusting the food properly. So what happens with it? Well, you store it, right? That's the only thing that the body can do. And the second thing, and by the way, they always happen hand in hand, always happen together, is whenever you have obesity or overweight, severe overweight, you always have high, high amounts of reactive oxygen species. Because those are the only two things that the body can do with the extra electrons. It cannot simply evaporate them, though there's some research on grounding that I think it can actually help get rid of the excess electrons. I was going to ask you about the grounding, if that was... Uh, it, I mean, I think, it's, I think a, it's promising. Because it, to me, it superficially, it appears to be yeah. a re another reductive stress because it's a source of electrons, and that's the issue in excess electrons. Well, uh some studies are saying actually, because when they measured the electron potential of the blood, and they didn't measure any to the ADH ratio, but mm -hmm. the, basically they, they said that when people were grounded, they were actually losing the excess electrons. So, oh, interesting. Okay, because I mean that the, the this information I was studying before was suggested it was the exact opposite, but it makes sense. You're just like if you're dissipating static electricity, exactly, exactly, precisely, yourself, precisely. Which is, uh, but the static electricity is an yeah. excess of electrons, right? So, yeah, yeah. so you so you're discharging them somehow. Um, so, really, basically, the like I said, the two things that the body can do with excess electrons, which by definition is a reductive state, or let's call it a reductive stress, is dissipate them through either synthesizing fats. Or creating these reactive oxygen species, not that the body wants to, but if the electrons are not being processed properly, they will react with molecular oxygen and create those reactive oxygen species, which then the body has to somehow deactivate, and it's got a number of different enzymes, right? Or you can take antioxidants. But the whole point is, <laughs> before you even get to that point, why bother taking all of these sub substances if the whole point, if the whole problem from the very beginning was? You, the metabolic rate, like the metabolic process, was not working as fast as it should have. So the way to get rid of oxidative stress, paradoxically, is to increase oxidation, to increase the metabolic rate. That's really the ultimate antioxidant is improving metabolism. Now, if that doesn't work or, you, or you're not doing it for whatever reason, sure, antioxidants can help by neutralizing many, if not most, of the reactive oxygen species. But if you haven't addressed the blocks that are the reason for these reactive oxygen species, this means that it will always be produced. So you always have to be taking antioxidants. It really sounds like a suboptimal thing. It's like I keep cutting you with a knife and instead of really, you know, stitching up the wound, right, I'm going to give you a painkiller so you don't feel that the wound is there. It, yeah. It's not It's not really, you know, the solution. You're just masking up the problem by taking continuously the antioxidants. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not a valid approach, right? You say if you have a lot of PUFA, right, or if you've been, you know, under oxidative stress for, for a very long time, um, uh, but it's not the actual solution to the problem. The solution is improve metabolism so the electrons go where they should be going, that they don't build up.
Yeah, and that's exactly what Ray Pete's work is all about. The fundamental core is pro-metabolic yeah. work. It's to improve yeah. your metabolic rate. Yep. So the, the analogy that he gives is with the with a light bulb. Light bulb is between the two poles of a battery. One yeah. pole, we are the light bulb. Uh, and and the, the intensity of the light is the intensity of our metabolic rate. And the intensity of the light depends on how quickly the electrons can flow from one pole to the other through the light bulb. If something is, if let's say if the light bulb is made of the conductor, it has very high resistance, then the light will be dimmer and it will be producing a lot of heat and eventually the light bulb will burn out. But the light bulb works best when there is very little resistance and the light is as bright as possible, which means the electrons are facing very little resistance in this in this object that is staying in on their way between food and oxygen, right? The two poles of the battery. So us, the less resistant, the less resistance, the less problems we're causing to the electrons on their way from food to oxygen, the healthier we will be. Yeah, that's just amazing. So I'm sure, thank you for sharing that. It was just brilliant and it was actually pretty well simplified. I mean, it's a complex topic, but you did a magnificent job of simplifying. That's the best I've ever heard you say it. And so I'm sure anyone listening to this is really excited about learning how to reduce the reductive stress. So let's go over the big ones. I think, and and maybe rank order them is the most important. Would would poop elimination be the most important thing to, to reduce the oxidative stress or reductive stress? Sorry. Uh, well, I think as, as a very immediate thing you can do is take some oxidizing agents, right? If you have a buildup yeah. of electrons that are not meeting oxygen, things like. Um, Quinones, like coenzyme Q10, which is, by the way, a component of, of complex two and three. Sometimes mm-hmm. you get buildup of electrons because of coenzyme Q10 deficiency. Guess what? Taking statins reduces your ability to synthesize coenzyme Q10. So you would you would think that people taking statins will have higher amount of reactive oxygen species, and that has been confirmed universally, among many other issues that people taking statins face. A reduced molecule cannot accept electrons, but it can actually neutralize the already formed reactive oxygen species. So really the better thing to do is to take the oxidized version, which will help prevent the buildup of electrons to start with. Uh, And that will also potentially eliminate the problem with the synthesis of fat. Remember the antioxidants, once you take them the reduced form, they only address the reactive oxygen species. They don't address the other pathway through which the body gets rid of excess electrons, which is the synthesis of additional fat. While the quinones, the oxidized molecules, the oxidizing agents, will actually solve the problem at the very beginning, which is if there is a block somewhere along the steps, most quinones can actually take this extra load of electrons to themselves and, and relieve the block a little bit. So the another quinone would be vitamin K2, right? Uh, yes, vitamin K2 is a quinone. Methylene blue, which you mentioned in your email, oh, is another one. Oh, methylene yes. blue. We're gonna, well, we, I guess we could talk about it now. I, I'm I'm a big, huge fan of methylene blue. I mean, I it's a quinone-like molecule. It can accept two electrons. Um, yeah. And basically, it, it can be cycle redox, so you can then donate them to another portion, right? Then come back, know, pack, pick up another two. It's the parent molecule for hydroxyquinone or hydroxyquinone? Quinine. Quinine is the parent molecule for hydroxy uh, for, for hydroxychloroquinoquine, which was used for COVID. No, but I thought, wasn't the quinine der- a derivative, a non-staining derivative of methylene blue? Uh, let me see. That was my understanding. Was derived that they they got the quinine just that was developed specifically because they didn't yes because they were doing problem yes they were isolating the quinine molecule and the yeah. person who invented who discovered methylene blue then patented it for malaria it was like a German scientist I think yeah, in the eighteen sixties 
Paul Ehrlich. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So he, yes, they're structurally similar. I didn't know actually. That's see, I learned something every day. Learn something every day. Yes, they're structurally very similar, but it's a non. The quinine is colorless. Well, yes. the methylene blue in its oxidized form is actually very deep, kind of blue. But if it's reduced, it's colorless. <laughs> it's colors, exactly. Yes, and there is a there is a company doing research with reduced methylene blue that is now developed a, a cream, anti aging cream that you apply to your body, and basically by improving the met the metabolism by improving the flow of electrons, they're saying they're capable of reversing skin aging in humans. Yeah, I remember reading that. There was a Nature about it was pre COVID. It was like 2018, I think. That's yeah, yeah, that paper. Uh, the, um, but methylene blue, you wouldn't want the reduced version normally because it's going to, it's going to, it, it's not going to help reductive stress, but the beautiful thing about methylene blue, and, and, and this is where I was hoping you can clear, clarify this for me is because it's, it's, it's can be oxidative or it can be reductive. Yes. Yes. You can go back and forth. Well, most of the antioxidants, if they either donate or, or accept an electron, they're done. So they're, they're yeah, done. Yeah. You have to excrete them and get and, a new one. But when methylene blue can go back and forth for a long time. I mean, half-life is, I think, it's like 36 hours. Um, no, I so, think the half-life is closer to 13, my understanding. Uh, I, will, I will send you a study which showed that while okay, in the blood it is, yeah, in the blood I, it is, in tissues, the, it builds up. And even at very low doses, you can actually get it uh, at up to two days to basically stay wow, there. Oh, that is interesting. Though. So a lot more questions on methylene blue then. So... Um, the oh so one of the we're going to go into other ways. I mean, you mentioned the quinines, the CoQ10 and um, vitamin K2 and methylene blue, like quinine or quinone. Uh, but there's other. We'll talk about niacinamide and I mean vitamin B2 because you want to stop those coke. The, the reason the reductive stress is going is because of the electrons are flowing backwards in the electron transport train. Yeah. So uh, and many times that's due to reduced cofactors like NAD. NAD yep. plus, but if those cofactors, this is where, I, this is the question, if those cofactors aren't present, my understanding is that the beautiful thing about methylene blue, it, anything can block those, those uh, complexes, uh, including cyanide or yep. other- Nitric oxide. Yep. Nitric oxide, it could block, yeah, it's, it's cytochrome 4. So it, whatever's blocking it, it doesn't matter because methylene blue just transfers the electrons straight exactly. to oxygen, no matter what the heck's going wrong with those electron transport chains. So it would seem to me, it's kind of like the ultimate uh, solution for reductive stress. Yep, uh, am it I is. confused on this? Uh, no, no, you, you're absolutely correct. Even vitamin K or like or, or the simpler benzoquinone, of which coenzyme Q10 is a derivative, they, they can only work at specific steps of the right. electron transport chain. Mm -hmm. I think the CoQ10 is complex 2 and potentially complex 3. I think vitamin K is complex 2. However, complex 1 and complex 4, we don't know of any other quinone that can actually take care of them except methylene blue. So at any point, actually even in the Krebs cycle, if there's a problem with the Krebs cycle, methylene blue can serve as an emergency oxidant. In other words, can accept these electrons. If you have a buildup of succinic acid and you don't have the necessary cofactor FAD, which is derived from vitamin B2, methylene blue to the rescue. We can actually go even there and accept those electrons and allow basically the electrons to continue floating through the electron transport chain. So yes, methylene blue is probably the most universal quinone that is non-toxic to humans, at least in the the dosages mm -hmm. that are used clinically, they can probably resolve most of the metabolic problems associated with a buildup of electrons or reductive stress. So would it be fair to say that you believe it could be an important supplement for almost anyone? 
Methylene blue in combination with with niacinamide is probably the ultimate metabolic over the counter therapy you can oh do without taking thyroid or you, anything else that artificially uh, increases. <laughs> that is fantastic. Now, methylene blue is rapidly augmented and synergized with near infrared radiation, which is seventy percent of the photons from the sun are near infrared, or you can get a near infrared sauna. But so ideally, you'd want to combine it with near infrared. Have you seen the, so several human studies are testing methylene blue for Alzheimer's disease. I've not um, seen that. No, if you got, more if you recent got studying ones. that, if you could send it to me, great, because I'm interviewing Dale Bredesen real soon. Yeah, two of them, actually. There's a company in the UK that patented a slightly modified, really a salt of methylene blue. It's not a different molecule. It metabolizes into methylene blue in the body, but in order for them to patent it, they have to change the molecule somehow. Anyways, they created this, this methylene blue-like molecule, and they're studying, they've been studying for Alzheimer's since, I think, 2011 or 12, and they mm. found out in a more the, the most recent trial that it reverses the, the symptoms of Alzheimer's in 80% of the people. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. It's, well, there's a plateau. Yeah. There's a plateau of the benefits. Wow. That is. Can you send me that? Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. It's, it's I, a remarkable know, study. We're just doing like muscle testing and stuff to figure it out. But but when you're sick, I think there's a massive benefit for taking a higher dose. Higher no dose question. combined with red light because then it creates the photodynamic effect, which is yeah. Combination of red light and methylene blue creates singlet oxygen species, which is part of the reactive oxygen species. And those are extremely toxic to viruses and to bacteria. Yeah. Uh, Pfizer has patented the photodynamic therapy with methylene blue and red light for cancer. And they're saying, really? there's no need. Oh, yeah, I'll send you the patent. They're saying, they've been, I think they patented like 10 years ago. They said, oh, we've been giving people these toxic chemotherapy drugs and radiation. But really, the mechanism of action that we're after is we're increasing reactive oxygen species and killing the tumor cells because they're more vulnerable. They're saying, is there a way to do this in a less toxic way? Oh, look, methylene blue, red light. Combine the two, and they're saying this is our patent. And the re- I'm surprised the patent was granted, but they said, "Look, we know about methylene blue and red light as kill- for killing pathogens, but we're patenting it for cancer." Uh, and of course, they created a slightly modified version of methylene blue, just like that UK company, mm-hmm. and the patent was granted. Pfizer has a patent on using methylene blue and red light for treating cancer. Wow. So, do you think there's any? Con- do you have any concerns for taking higher doses for people? Because it, it appears, especially for like long COVID, that there and and where or any condition where you have this massive fatigue, which it's obviously related to the metabolic rate, yep. but as a short fix of sort of a band-aid while you're addressing the other issues, such as the macronutrient ratios and revising the diet, that you know, higher dose of methylene blue would be useful for energy. You know, I think the ideal thing is to combine it with niacinamide and keep the dosage at about well, yeah, 15 of course. I mean, we're, we haven't talked about this. It's on our list, but man, that niacinamide is a no-brainer and it's almost free. Uh, so, uh, Methylene yeah. blue is a relatively strong monoamine oxidase type A inhibitor. And in okay. combination, which means it's going to uh, de- decrease the degradation of serotonin, which means it's going to increase the buildup of serotonin. So if you take in anything that contributes to the serotonergic tone, it's potentially dangerous. Multiple case studies published of people going to the hospital in shock, and methylene blue is the preferred treatment for shock because it rapidly recovers the, the blood pressure and the and the perfusion of the tissues, which are losing, which are dying because there's no blood supply. But they notice that since they give a very high dose of between 100 and 400 milligrams as a single injection, they had cases where people went into a serotonin syndrome because they didn't know, because when somebody comes in critical through the door, you, you don't always know what medication they're taking, right? Then we, people went into serotonin syndrome and uh, there's a known interaction of methylene blue with SSRI drugs 
And if you go to like uh, uh, even CVS or like Rite Aid Pharmacy and tell them, hey, what medication should I not take together with methylene blue? The first thing they'll say is SSRIs. I've already tried at the local pharmacy. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I've interviewed uh, Francisco Gonzalez Lima, who's supposedly the top methylene blue researcher in the United States. It's at the University of Texas. And, uh, you know, it, I had this question I asked him, the dosing. He's they, they have the, the researchers. I don't know if you realize this. They have not studied doses below 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Really? Yeah. That I said, well, what about lower doses? You know, it makes more. Why not lower? They We don't know. We haven't studied it, you know, which was shocking to me. But that, you know, 0.5, that would be, you know, so it's like 40, 50 milligrams for most people. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. But I mean, but I, I, I was doing like 15. I said, you know, I, just, I think it's like 0.115 or maybe even 0.2, not 0.5. Two so, great studies that I'll send you. One of them remarkable. You can send it to him. I'm surprised he doesn't know about it. Methylene yeah. trials for clinically, for, for suicidal depression, impermeable to any treatment, and another one for psychosis. So the psychosis trial is really interesting. So they had several groups. One of them, they gave methylene blue at a very high dose, 300 milligrams daily. And they said, this is the active group. But because people who are taking methylene blue, they know they're taking methylene blue. So in order to properly blind them, we're going to have a placebo group, which also gets methylene blue, but only at the 15 milligram. <laughs> and guess, guess who had the biggest benefit? Oh, the placebo group. <laughs> it, would, it would have to be in serendipity research, you know, yeah. it wasn't by design. Yeah, I mean, I, it's just the 300 milligrams had some improvement, but not statistically significant. Placebo got worse, and the 50 milligram group got their psychosis cured. And another yeah. another study, because I think the same, probably by the same researchers who said, okay, 50 milligrams metal level, there must be some magic to it. Let's try it for depression. In two weeks, <laughs> in two weeks, 50 milligrams of methylene blue got rid of treatment-resistant depression. Oh my gosh! So, this, Georgie, I've I've listened to many dozens, probably coming up on a hundred of your podcasts now, and I've heard you talk about methylene blue, but I've never heard you strongly endorse and recommend it like you do oh, niacinamide. Yeah. Why is that? Why aren't you talking about it more? Uh, it's just that uh, you know a lot of people. I'm I'm concerned because, like you said, forty percent of women of childbearing age are taking SSRI drugs. Many men are as well. I don't want to sound too too because it can be if you if you play if you're taking a lot of SSRIs and a lot of people are taking a high dose too. Mm -hmm. uh, I know a lot of people who are only on SSRI drugs and are already showing up jittery and confused, which is like a precursor to the serotonin syndrome. These are signs symptoms of that. Very, very little. They need a very, very extra little help to get into the serotonin syndrome, which, by the way, has thirty to forty percent mortality rate. Definitely not something I want to be involved with. Okay. So I don't. Yeah, even, I, I love it as a molecule. If yeah. you know how to do, how to play with it, yeah. and use it, use it wisely. Yeah, uh, unlike vitamin K, which can abuse as much as you want, and it has no known side effects. But of course, at the expense that it's much more selective. While methylene blue being the proverbial power drill, right? can resolve all of your problems but you have to be careful with it wow wow was not expecting this this is fantastic so uh man this is great so that's a, the you know one thing i wanted to mention that gonzalez lima peru mentioned to me is that it's pretty much everyone everyone should have it in their emergency cap now you don't have to take it especially if you're concerned about the serotonin syndrome but if you get a stroke or heart attack oh yeah you are out of your mind. It is the first thing you should reach for and swallow. A hundred percent. And what, what would the, assuming that you're not an SSRI, what would, what would you 
if someone had a stroke, what would they do? Even a single milligram will do great, great. Uh, uh, there's a multiple animal trials, which if you translate the dosage, comes down to less than 15 milligrams, single dose. Even any dose over a milligram and less than 15 milligrams, will do, I think will do just fine. Um, there was an in vitro study which showed full reversal of aging in human cells. Unfortunately, it wasn't in vivo. And that study showed that the optimal concentration for anti-aging benefits, which means for longer-term consumption, is about 100 nanomoles per liter. You, you, in humans, in most humans, of course, it depends on the volume of the human, right? Some people are bigger than, than others. But in most people, you can achieve that with dosages, daily doses between 5 and 15 milligrams daily. So really, for me, the combination of all of these studies, the treatment-resistant depression, the psychosis, the Alzheimer trial, which found plateau at 80 milligrams, actually 60 milligrams, kind of tells me that the optimal dose is somewhere between 5 and 15, depending on wow. the person. But any dose, wow. any dose, even in the microgram amounts, if person has a stroke or any kind of other acute event, any amount any that can get into your bloodstream is probably going to be helpful. All right. So I, I, I was recommending a bit higher dose, but still significantly lower than the experts were recommending. I knew it was I knew it wasn't 0.5 milligrams. And it, that, it, was, that was their low dose. That was their yeah. low dose. They go up to four milligrams per kilogram. Yeah. Because that's the clinically used dose in hospitals. They, if you go in the hospital in a shock, the dosage is by injection for 100 to 400 milligrams bolus meaning a single dose yeah yeah and the other thing too is that there's a lot of natural medicine clinicians who get methylene blue and they use it but they use it in an iv and there's just it's ridiculous there's no reason to use it iv it's just yeah. the, the absorption orally is close to 100 percent, isn't it yep but uh, it's it's uh, there's no difference in fact uh, i've seen several animal studies that show that you know the the, the bioavailability was a little bit delayed but the total bioavailability is yeah. close to 100 percent. so there's no reason yeah. to do iv so if you're dying from cyanide poisoning yeah go shoot an iv <laughs> but you know most people aren't dying of cyanide poisoning where, yeah. where every second counts i mean they could wait a few minutes and get 100 percent carbon so monoxide poisoning also a methylene blue is an antidote to that oh, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's very dangerous it's, yeah, I mean, you could. I mean, people die from it all the time. But if you yeah, no, it doesn't smell. You don't. You won't even feel it. Yeah. You just collapse basically. Or yeah. initially, you feel lightheaded. But if you start doing that, methylene blue immediately, because that's probably the quickest antidote to almost any metabolic problem. Okay. Well, this was an unexpected. I, I knew there would be a lot of unexpected bonuses, and this was a huge one. I mean, this is a radical game changer. So thanks for that insight. Because I'd always, I was just like, listen, when is he going to start talking about methylene blue? I didn't realize he was just concerned about the serotonin syndrome. On a podcast that I listened to actually this morning, you were talking about the value of Listerine in in changing the oral microflora to, to have some really powerfully beneficial effects. Of course, Listerine is, you were not recommending that because it's toxic no. as can be, but you're recommending a safer alternative that just happened to be a dilution of methylene blue. Maybe this magical 10 or 15 milligrams that you talked about putting into a liter of clean water and using it as an oral rinse. And you had also suggested adding some ethanol to increase it, which I actually you suggested putting in a quart of vodka. <laughs> quart of vodka, and you're going to be mimicking the Listerine without the side effects. Because <laughs> some of the antiseptic effect of Listerine is very, it's kind of like, it's because of the alcohol. Look yeah, at yeah. the contents of the label. I think it says 40% or 20% alcohol on the Listerine yeah, but bottle. it's not ethanol alcohol. What, what? Is it ethylacone? Uh, could be isopropyl, maybe. Isopropyl, it, probably isopropyl, yeah, which is not yeah. good. Why it's not good. You don't want to ingest it. No, no I don't want to. I mean, I wouldn't even let someone put isopropyl alcohol on my skin with those those alcohol white pads, you know? I just use peroxide. Yeah. So, uh, but ethanol, but yeah, so I guess, 
So you like that better? You think the ethanol would really help the methylene? Why would, I was curious because the methylene blue is absorbed so well into the tissues. Why would you need ethanol to push it You through? won't. I think I was commenting on how can you mimic Listerine at home without with a naturally oh. made formula. But you can you can get by simply by doing the basically the you know the methylene blue at the same concentrations that they use for sterilizing aquariums and for killing all the fungi and the viruses and the bacteria yeah, yeah. for the exact same reason. Think of the aquarium as your mouth. So the yeah. exact same concentration. Uh, I think it's like actually it's five to six milligrams per liter. So at that, the water will become very, I think, like very kind of vibrantly blue color. But yeah. I don't think it's going to change the coloration yeah. of your mouth. Yeah, the um, only thing I would be concerned about, and just caution, ha having partials myself or even full dentures if you had them, but I would take those partials or dentures out of your mouth because those will stain. But your teeth don't. I don't turn. I'm gonna stain a little bit, but not permanently. It disappears because as soon as it's reduced. It's, it's yep. the body uses it. In fact, yeah. it, on the forum long time ago, we proposed the methylene blue test of health. What is the oral dosage of methylene blue that you can take before your pee starts turning blue? And mm -hmm. the lower the dosage at which you start peeing blue, the healthier you are. Yeah, the problem with that is that if you're taking riboflavin, Oh yeah, they can change things. It's yes. going to be green, green or whatever. Yes, yes, yes. So pure, no other supplements, only methylene blue. And if you can get up, you 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 pee blue at like five milligrams. That's good. The higher the amount that requires, another way you can do the skin test, but it's mostly a localized test of, of health. Uh, in fact, they're using it for cancer biopsy for that reason. When they're looking with a camera and and a and a, and a scope like somewhere in your internals, and they see a problematic area, they go and inject methylene blue. And then basically they measure how quickly the methylene blue gets gets this color. They have a threshold. If it gets this color, you know, quicker than I don't know, 30 I'm making up a number. But if it's quicker than a certain number, they're saying this tissue is cancerous. And they, then they're gonna take a biopsy. Wow. Yeah. That's that's pretty good. So I I, I most of the people I see is like 30 to 40 milligrams before they start peeing blue. So that's relatively high, I guess. I mean, what's the lowest you've seen that with where five? Five. five milligrams very young people yeah i mean basically like uh, wow. people in their, in their teens wow that's good to know that's good to know which, which is consistent with your recommendation of such a small dose you know it's 10 15 milligrams or so yeah. wow and because the cancer reduces the methylene blue so quickly it shows you that extreme reduction is definitely bad right cancer is by definition in a reduced state because it's consuming the oxidized methylene blue at such a rate Met diabetes a, a state of extreme reduction and then oxidative stress, a state of another, you know, but less extreme. So it's just, just a continuous spectrum from health to cancer. It's just measured by the degree of reduction in the organism. That is an unbelievably beautiful anecdotal confirmation of, of reductive stress theory. It's just, it really isn't a theory because you've got the data to support it, but, you know, supposition. It, it, it's beautiful. I mean, this has got... I, this has got to be adopted and understood and applied because it's so powerful. Once you understand it, it, it just helps you navigate the whole process much easier. The only, uh, I think the only hurdle currently is not that the medicine doesn't know about these things. They're they're convinced that the structural damages in most diseases come first and there are always some genetic vulnerability, susceptibility. Mm -hmm. they, they still can't get over the fact that a simple metabolic disturbance, if propagated over time for a significantly long period of time, will cause those structural changes, and then it will become a self-propagating cycle. So mm -hmm. first you have the metabolic disturbance or the functional problem. Over time, it leads to a structural problem. But in the structural problem, now you have deranged tissue, which contributes to even more functional problem. And on and on it goes until something breaks that, uh, that vicious cycle. 
You want to hear other benefits of methylene blue? It's yeah. a it's a very powerful aromatase inhibitor at a, at a oh, effective concentration of about five hundred nanomoles. Yeah, so it's a sub sub micromolar concentration effective aromatase inhibitor. Wow, uh, did not know that. Did not know that. That's great. So, uh, so I guess we're going to talk about niacinamide in a moment too. Uh, but anyway, we'll go so obesity treatment. Obviously, the whole world is pretty much suffering with it. You know, we're talking about more than 80% of the people have prob- struggled with their weight. And uh, I think that the latest estimate is about 95% are metabolically inflexible, which which goes to the point of not being metabolically efficient, which is exactly what we're talking about. So what are your best strategies for addressing the obesity problem, especially in those who are resistant, you know, really struggle? With it, and you know, you know, I want to get into the RAU forty six and some of the other strategies that uh, the novel approaches that you've mentioned in the past. So dietarily first, I think we both agree on that one hundred percent. Absolute avoidance of puffalos as much as possible without going orthorexic. Okay, you, you, you shouldn't be killing yourself. I mean, uh, it's not possible practically to completely avoid puffo into the into no, the into I, the dietary. I got, my, I got my level down to one percent. Wow! Wow! One one percent, not puffo. But just omega six. Just omega six. Okay. Yeah. So yes, c- avoidance as much as possible, and also maybe a little bit of coconut oil, maybe a, like a tablespoon with each meal, because it's not only the absolute amount of pufa, it's also the ratio of saturated fats to pufa, which determines both the metabolic rate, which the coconut oil raises, and also the reduction of oxidative stress, which is well reductive stress really. Pufa raises that, while coconut oil has been shown to reduce it. But if you're taking ghee, would you need the coconut oil? No. So, so I mean, I'm mentioning coconut oil because it's um, you can carry it around with yourself, and most people are okay with refined coconut oil because it has no taste. Um, mm-hmm. Even ghee, which I love the taste of, most people kind of bulk it. Like I don't want to eat a spoon of butter, or <laughs> but if you're cooking with ghee, then you probably don't need the coconut oh, oil to start with. And the one of the best foods out there is those boiled potatoes with ghee oh, yes, and yes. and a really good sea salt. Oh. Yep. Yep, it's and some cheese. Good. You can put some Parmigiano-Reggiano oh, yeah, or yeah, Pecorino-Romano. Yeah. Man, the best. Yeah, okay. you know the the Russians, the Soviets actually did the study after Second World War about the they call it the potato diet. Mm-hmm. You can not only survive, you can thrive, thrive yeah. on a diet of nothing but butter and potatoes and salt and water. That's it. Yeah, it's because it's got the keto acids for the protein, right? Everything exactly, everything in there. It's got potassium, but uh, even higher than oranges. It's got magnesium. It's got all the cofactors. It's got all the vitamins that you need as well. So you can thrive on a diet of potato and butter. I don't it's know of any other. Well- just make sure it's well cooked. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but yeah, if you're in a state of war, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good eat even raw. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, one of the things I had recommended earlier, and I realized it was spot on because at the time I was carb carbophobic, but I told people from their preparations that when COVID was going on, the food was shortages were impending to pick up some 20 pound bags of rice, white rice. I mean, yes. it's crazy not to have that. I mean, you can survive on that. I mean, obviously it's, it's depleted of nutrients, but it will give you. Helpful calories. calories that aren't going to wreck you up metabolically. Uh, white sugar, packed sugar, like a bag of bag of white rice, bags of white rice, condensed milk is also probably a pretty good thing to have. Uh, yeah. It's usually sweetened, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, even the yeah, yeah. non sweetened version is pretty good. Um, so yeah, these are things. Uh, canned canned fish, canned food, canned oysters. Um, also pretty. Yeah, good. the problem with the canned foods, though, is you've got the, the liners, you know. Yeah, the endocrine disruptors. Yeah, endocrine disruptors in there, but you know, I mean, if you're doing these other things like methylene blue, probably messes with those too. So, 
You can block uh, most of methylene blue, a very another very interesting study. A study showed that you can oxidatively destroy most of the endocrine disruptors by either keeping your metabolic rate high or taking oxidizing agents such as methylene blue. Isn't that great? You can actually block most of the endocrine disruptors from, from bothering us simply by taking methylene blue daily. Who would have known? <laughs> You know, in the experts, I mean, there's some really good committed individuals out there where there's life work is just in warning and informing people about these endocrine disruptors. But no one is talking about using methylene blue as an antidote because sometimes they're just unavoidable. They're pervasive in our environment. You touch the receipt on your, your grocery store thing and you're getting uh, the BPA. highest amount of BPA than any other thing in your environment. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's almost unavoidable unless you're living in a bubble. So uh, we need these types of solutions. So, you know, one of the things you had mentioned in my first podcast with you is uh, DNP, and you mentioned earlier on this one too, yeah. the dinitropenol is a mitochondrial uncoupler, which simply means that instead of your electrons flowing through electron transportation and generating ATP at cytochrome 5, they're shuttling outwards and creating heat. Exactly. Yeah. So it raises your metabolic rate quite a bit. And DNP, dinitrophenol, is actually illegal in the United States because it killed a lot of people. But it was very didn't, it was, didn't, wasn't illegal because it wasn't effective. It worked. But well, raising you know, their thermogenesis too much, and they died of heat stroke. That yeah, really yeah. was the key. But you go to Mexico, you go to Thailand, you go to any other medical tourism places, and they say, "I want to lose weight." DNP is one of the first things they offer. So the other metabolic uncoupler is aspirin, which, exactly. uh, you know, is another, you know, there's a few things that I think seem to be universal. A met methylene blue would qualify for us for serotonin syndrome, but the aspirin, niacinamide for sure, probably vitamin E, maybe even glycine. These are something almost everyone benefits from. And in some ways, it really should be considered a supplement or drug because it's so essential to our optimizing survival in this type of 21st century environment. So do you think, you'd mentioned in a, the first time that they were doing, you saw studies where they're doing nine grams, which is literally 27 yeah. full dose aspirin a day, which has probably caused tinnitus or tinnitus and most of the people took it. But it was a very effective uncoupler and people lost weight with it. So are there other strategies like that that you'd recommend? I think nine nine grams of aspirin is a little bit too extreme and it might cause problems. A lot of Caffeine? Also, metabolic uncoupler, all, really? very old study. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tw in 20, 000, 2014, when I first joined that infamous Rapid Forum, one of the first studies they po I posted there because I found and I thought it was interesting is that caffeine, depending on how high of a concentration you do, has works the exact same way as dinitrophenol. Uh, it's widely acknowledged that, that caffeine raises your basal metabolic rate, but most of the dosages that are used are within the 50 to 100 milligrams per do per, per study, right? And that 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 even that low dosage raises your basal metabolic rate by four to five percent, and this increase stays for about 12 hours. So just two coffees a day will be raising your basal metabolic rate by couple of percentage points, and that effect will probably stay throughout the entire 24-hour period until you start drinking the coffee again. But at higher doses, but still still lower than the aspirin, um, so the equivalent of human dose of about a gram a day, which is kind of hit on the high side, but I know people who are consuming it, at about a gram a day, caffeine had almost the exact same uncoupling effects as dinitrophenol. And multiple, wow. multiple animal studies actually compared them head to head, the exact same weight loss achieved by the caffeine as the dinitrophenol. Wow. The only thing at that dose, of course, is you want to be really, really careful about taking it too late, especially if you're caffeine sensitive and you don't metabolize it well. 
also caffeine uh, inhibits inhibits your synthesis of of urea from ammonia so you can actually build you can get a buildup of ammonia oh. especially if you're on a high protein diet so you got you want to be careful with with caffeine but not as dangerous as as dmp and of course it's widely available so you, you don't have yeah. to wow break the law to get it so if people aren't drinking coffee would they just could they, they take a caffeine tablet sure like- caffeine tablet is great and if you get the jitters of it usually it means like you don't have enough glycogen stored in the liver because the way the body processes the caffeine and because it also raised the metabolic rate it says let me throw more food at it so caffeine is like the spark it's the catalyst right but if without the fuel you'll be running on empty so make sure you take it with, with a sufficient amount of fuel. Um, and if it still gives you the jitters, uh, usually combining it with uh, glycine, which is an inhibitory amino acid, or theanine, which is more popular. Now, in fact, there are even products on the market combining the theanine amino acid found mostly in tea with caffeine because yeah. it completely eliminates the the like the, that you know unpleasant wow, stimulating effect. Of what caffeine. about adding theanine with GABA too? Uh, Fine. Taurine is another GABA agonist, okay. another inhibitor amino acid. Uh, yeah. it, unsurprisingly, taurine is in, in Red Bull precisely for that reason. They found out exactly oh. how much taurine you need to block the jittery effects of a specific amount of caffeine. How much How much is it typically? A few hundred milligrams? Oh, I think it's like a one gram per can. So a one gram per oh, can neutralizes. Gram per, per can? Yeah, gram of taurine per can. Yeah. Wow. But I think it's there also for another reason. They consume a lot of uh, monosodium glutamate in East Asian countries, and taurine, the formula, was originally invented in Thailand. So taurine is a known antidote to monosodium glutamate because glutamate is an excitotoxic amino acid. So they so it, they eat a lot of monosodium glutamate because it's got this it, it's a it's a flavor um, uh, enhancement um, that they add to many like soy products and different meats. So the way you prevent the jitteriness and the excitotoxicity is you eat inhibitory amino acids, either taurine or glycine, right, or theanine, which is in tea. Uh, so taurine was this formula, the Red Bull formula, was invented to kind of like offset some of the damage that uh, the monosodium glutamate does. So the dosage is a little bit high. For, uh, I think one can of Red Bull has about 80 milligrams of caffeine. For that, maybe about 250 milligrams of taurine is enough to negate the jitterness. The extra taurine on top of that, I think, is because the drink was meant to combat monosodium glutamate toxicity. Yeah, what, but glycine would be helpful too? Perfectly fine. Glycine, yeah. taurine, and theanine are all GABA agonists. So even though they, I okay. mean, they basically act like GABA, or you can take GABA if you want. Yeah, yeah. So Because there's some of the, I, mean, I think we're coming up with a supplement that's GABA and theanine. Yeah. Uh, beta alanine, also GABA agonist. Um, oh, for a long time, medicine was saying. Yeah, very the, good. The, pre, the precursor for. Uh, Carnosine. Carnosine. Which is, which is most people don't know, but you would, you know, ages are terrible, but ALEs are even worse. And carnosine is a really effective sacrificial sink for it. It just binds to it. So before it hurts you. Yep. And, uh, and the uh, medicine for a long time has claimed that oral GABA is not bioavailable and it doesn't reach the, it doesn't cross the blood brain barrier. Recently, all of this has been falsified. I mean, debunked just as we're debunking the oxidative stress and oh, cortisol being an anti-inflammatory. I don't know if you want to go into that next. (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's finish up with the obesity. Okay. So, and we'll talk about proteins too. Uh, for resistant obesity, you gave us some ideas of the uh, on couplers, but clearly cortisol is the primary contributor. And you get to this vicious cycle, right? You know, the cortisol makes it worse, and you get heavier, and that increases weight, increases the cortisol. So you talked about RU486 or mifepristone as yeah. the uh, abortion pill. 
uh, as it was initially developed as a cortisol blocker and then subsequently found to also block progesterone so that it could be used as an, uh, an abortion pill. But the primary purpose was was to block cortisol. So does it block anything else other than progesterone? Like, does it block testosterone? Because we had talked earlier at the beginning how the anabolic steroids are actually useful because they're they're anti-cortisol and, and it's, it's limiting the cortisol impact on your uh, catabolism is, is their primary mechanism of action. So could you use RU46 in treatment obesity, assuming you supplement with pregnenolone or progesterone to counteract the, the impact on those receptors? Or is it just not a wise idea? Um, I don't know if it's a wise idea, but would it be effective? Absolutely. There are multiple. Um, I mean, if you go to the bodybuilding forums, that's actually mm-hmm. one of the accepted ways to lose weight without dieting. Um, really? Either, oh yeah, DMP or RU486 or upping your dosage of testosterone, whatever anabolic hormone you're you're taking, because it will block cortisol that much more, right? And then basically you will, um, you know, you'll lose the weight. So if you're a competitive bodybuilder, they're saying you're already taking the anti-cortisol hormones, you don't need to take anymore. But if you're kind of like into the healthy bodybuilding stance, you're not, you don't want to become a huge Hulk. They're saying, look, if you just want to keep the weight off. And be shredded, and you know, have decent muscle mass, and not have a big belly. To take RU486 is basically less uh, risky than the anabolic steroids. That but you would want to take it with at least pregnenolone, right? Definitely, yeah. Because like yeah. any other steroid, it's probably going to disrupt one or more of the steps of the steroidal, the downstream cascade. And usually, even the, for the anabolic steroids, there's the infamous roid rage. And they found out that the reason the roid rage occurs is that most anabolic steroids block the synthesis of progesterone as subsequently of a metabolite of progesterone known as allopregnanolone, which mm. has a very potent calming and antidepressant effect. FDA recently approved allopregnanolone as a rapidly acting antidepressant. So clearly, if you're interfering with its production, you expect to people to get either depressed or angry, which is a very common sign of, you know, of depression as well. So these anabolic steroids were disrupting one or more of these steps. So taking pregnenolone or progesterone was found in animal studies to prevent the aggression associated with anabolic steroids. So RU486, also a steroidal molecule, um, likely to disrupt probably the initial steps of the steroidogenesis. So yes, at pregnenolone or progesterone uh, or progesterone and DHA, but I think pregnenolone is the, probably the easiest thing, just one thing for people to remember to take. Yeah, together when, you with take, when you take oral pregnenolone with the steroid, not steroid, with a fat, a saturated fat, more than 14 carbons, which you mentioned in our first podcast, uh, does it ter- convert to allopregnenolone? Uh, basically, so so what you want is as much of the pregn- uh, pregnenolone to get absorbed through the lymphatic system, right, to avoid the first pass metabolism through the liver. And once it gets it released into your bloodstream through the thoracic duct, mm-hmm. then basically it gets converted into whatever the body needs. Uh, a higher high doses of oral pregnenolone in humans, multiple clinical studies with schizophrenia and other mental disorders show that or high doses of oral pregnenolone in humans raise predominantly three hormones, of course, pregnenolone, right? DHEA, because pregnenolone is a precursor, and allopregnenolone. So these are the preferred pathways for converting pregnenolone into. And of course, further down, you know, androgens and estrogens and corticoids is needed, but it turns out that the precursor mostly goes into the these beneficial pathways that we know about, allopregnenolone Perfect. being one of them. So in my view, I, I consider for almost all adults, a daily pregnenolone DHEA supplement would be a really good idea because, you know, they're so helpful for combating excessive estrogen, which is like pervasive and, and 
almost a factor in, in almost all chronic diseases is, is excess estrogen. Oh, yeah. I mean, estrogen is probably the primary dead differentiating hormone we have. Unsurprisingly, it increases the oxidation of fat. It decreases the oxidation of glucose. It increases the synthesis of cortisol. In other words, activates the stress response because that's what estrogen is. Many people think of it as a female hormone. No, men mm -hmm. produce as much, can produce as much as females do. And in fact, um, older males, basically, if you look at menopausal females and, and older males, males can produce much more than females do. And I don't, I don't know if you've noticed that the very old people phenotype, the males get kind of feminized. Mm -hmm. And the females get masculinized. They really like kind of merge into like a unisex kind of looking uh, organism. And it's now known that, that estrogen is one of the primary determinants of that. Excess estrogen feminizes males and masculinizes females. All right. Well, let's get back to, uh, we started in niacinamide, but we kind of escaped it. And in, in our view, both of our views, you are almost out of your mind and irrational if you're not taking niacinamide. It's yeah. almost free. Like it's a few dollars a year if you buy the powder and you only need like 50 milligrams a few times a day. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm even up to four times a day. I, I try to take mine in e equal spaces. Like 50 milligrams of a powder is one sixty-fourth of a teaspoon. Pretty easy to do. And it has no taste at all. It's just, you, just, you, could even, you could even swallow it directly, but it's so much easier to put it in water. So, uh, and, you know, we talked about the PDH, the peruvian dehydrogenase is the throttle that for the Randall switch. But what activates that PDH, the peruvian dehydrogenase, is niacinamide, or yeah. actually the conversion to NAD, the NAD yeah. that activates yeah. it. Yeah. So if, the, if, we have, if we have an excess of NADH and deficiency of NAD causing all of these metabolic problems, whether it's reactive to reactive oxygen species, oxidative slash reductive stress, or actually if you have too high of an NADH to NAD, you won't even be synthesizing a sufficient amount of ATP. If you look at the studies, they show that ATP levels have an almost perfect correlation with NAD+. So the higher your NAD+, the higher... Uh, the ATP synthesis is, and the better your metabolism works. That's so a, that's huge. That you know, that's a pearl that, like, I didn't even realize. And I'm a huge niacinamide fan and AD plus. I never knew that there's a direct correlation between ATP and NAD. Eighty percent of your ATP production comes from NAD plus. The other twenty from huge. FAD. <laughs> now, and you need the magnesium too, right? Because yes. it's it's always magnesium ADP, ATP. It's there, yes, got, because if you're yeah, if you if, if you take magnesium, so here's why a lot of people that are taking magnesium may not be feeling the benefit of it is because they don't have enough ATP synthesized. If you don't have enough ATP synthesized, the magnesium cannot bind to the ATP and it's in the mm. body. It's always bound to the ATP as a complex. So magnesium will be floating around in its free ionic form and very quickly excreted as well. So mm. which means that people who, who are the most needy of magnesium are the ones who are least capable of absorbing it. Uh, and making use of it, which means that if you be taking a magnesium, make sure you take it with some niacinamide because niacinamide will raise the NAD, which will raise the ATP, and then you'll be able to utilize the magnesium instead of just giving you loose tools or intestinal irritation. You uh, think the timing of those should be similar, like taking the niacinamide with the magnesium? First, I think first niacinamide to give it some time to raise the NAD. Oh, it takes okay. about half an hour, and then okay. you can take the, the magnesium a little bit later. Okay, and then... Because it's a it's a B vitamin, it has a very relatively short half life and a matter of hours. So you'd want to take it multiple times a day. You just don't multiple take times, one yeah. dose for the yeah. day, and that's it, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the smaller doses, because the the NA, NAMTP enzyme, which synthesizes NAD, is easily saturated. So if you take too high of a dose, 
you're going to block that enzyme. And in fact, most of that niacinamide dose will actually stay, will float around and get converted to something called 6-methylnicotinamide, which is a metabolite, helps the body excrete excess niacinamide, nicotinamide, right? But again, you'll be mostly wasting it. Now, some studies have shown some interesting beneficial properties of even 6-methylnicotinamide being an anti-inflammatory, anti-estrogenic, basically uh, lifespan extending substance, but it's not as beneficial as letting niacinamide get converted to NAD+. So you have to take a dosage that does not block the NAMPT enzyme, and that dosage in humans seems to be, for most people, less than 100 milligrams per pop. Um, so, yeah, which yeah. means 50, as you said, right? So 50 yeah. milligrams several times daily, you're going to be converting mostly into NAD without creating any excess that can block any of the other pathways. Beautiful things. And you talked about the 6-methyl nicotinamide. You probably know this, but it took me a long time to figure this out when I was studying NAD, that nicotinamide and niacinamide are two different names for the same damn molecule. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so most people don't know that they are, it's, oh, it's, oh, what is nicotinamide? You know, they actually decide, that's a scientific term. And then they realize, you know, most, lay people confuse it with nicotine. So they decided to make it less onerous and made it niacinamide, uh, which is, you know, I, that's why I like to use niacinamide, just decreases the confusion. But uh, one of the other things that made me nervous about taking high doses of niacinamide, because when I was studying it, the literature was really clear, high doses, they never specified what a high dose was, but high doses is has negative impact on the sirtuins. And lo yes. and behold, I read you, I read one of your blog posts, the whole thing was upside down. The sirtuins are not as helpful as with the longevity protein. You don't want to mess with them too were. much. Yes, like 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 autophagy, right? It's there yeah, for yeah. a reason. You, you you may modulate it a little bit, but too much, you know, it's a mechanism that sirtuins, just like autophagy, is implicated in promoting already established cancers. They can prevent the cancers to for, to 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 start with if you're activating them. But once already tumor is present, you probably don't want to be messing with the sirtuins. Yeah, it's interesting. David Sinclair is the scientist who catalyzed my interest in NAD in about 2014, 2015. He had some very compelling research. And of course, he's the guy responsible for de- develop, or maybe doing the research, initial research on resveratrol, which you're not a big fan of, nope, for sure. No, no. Yeah, actually and- a functional antagonist, resveratrol and niacinamide. So if you like one, you probably don't like the other. <laughs> Yeah, so, and it's, he does not talk a, a lick about niacinamide, never does. He talks about NMN or is a derivative of a, one of his companies, I think Metro or something, put put out. Uh, actually, it was his research, his company's research that did the work, work on this NMN that got NMN off the market. I don't know if you know it was in clear. Oh, yeah, FDA said no longer solo yeah, over, yeah, over the counter because it's a new drug, a novel drug or whatever they yeah, call it. Yeah, yeah, because it's... I think it was Metro Pharmaceuticals. It was uh, it was Sinclair. Yeah, in Boston. I just sold yeah. it in Boston. Is his company? I didn't know it's his company. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is definitely his company. Or is he's connected with it in some way? I don't know if he owns it, but he's definitely connected. But anyway, it's, the reason I was sharing that story is that I, I I thank him for waking up my interest to this because we've known about NAD plus since 1905, I think. It's been over a century it's because it's an essential part of the Krebs cycle. And so I was fascinated about it because of its impact on the sirtuins and Harp and CD38, but then I re- afterwards studying your work in Rays, I realized, damn, it's still all about the basics, the Krebs cycle. That's why it really works is because it's ramping up the ATP production. It has nothing to do with the sirtuins. It's, it improves your metabolic rate, no more, no buildup of electrons, or at least tolerable buildup of electrons, no reactive oxygen species, and then basically you stay healthy for longer. And this is another mind-blowing pearl that I don't hear you mention it, but I did hear, hear it on one podcast. 
it actually is the required cofactor to take cortisol, which we've talked all about as dangerous, and convert it to the inactive form of cortisone. And also to take the active uh, form of, of estrogen called estradiol and convert it into the less active form, still active, but less dangerous, called estrone. So estradiol fully reduced. Oh, yeah. Dang, another good thing. So you just got, I've got to be irrationally out of your mind if you're not taking niacinamide. There's just n- simply no reason not to. None, zero, not okay. a. Yeah, I take it every day. Yeah, and actually, I I could announce here, because as we're shooting this, we're about six weeks out from actually producing what I believe is the only 50 milligram niacinamide tablet on the market. (laughs) So The only one. I've searched for a long time. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, I I realized for a long time, because I've been taking niacinamide at that dose for a few years now, but it takes us a long time to make these supplements. It's just, you know, a lot of, well, you know, you have a supplement company, so. Legalese and you know trying to yeah and, and raw materials and labeling and getting all that stuff out. But um, the other thing is is how common would you say liver disease is like NAFLD and then the alcoholic fatty liver disease too? I, I've, I've heard you say 80 percent, and the reason I mentioned that because it's helpful for this too. Yep. So some form of liver disease. So the, the, you have NAFLD, right? Then you have the more severe form, which is NASH, non-alcoholic mm-hmm. steroid hepatitis. Then you get like basically the fibrotic states such as cirrhosis and ultimately liver cancer, which is kind of like the final progression. Then you also you have the fattening liver from alcohol. And I don't know why they're they're separating non-alcoholic fatty liver disease from alcoholic fatty liver disease, considering <laughs> exactly. that they basically cause the exact same condition. <laughs> yeah, identical. There's no difference. Yeah. But if you're taking niacinamide, basically, you're preventing, by improving the metabolic rate, you're preventing a lot of the buildup of these reactive species, which are attacking the, the polyunsaturated fats that are in the liver. And it's been shown that it's this peroxidative process that, that is responsible for most of the damage that occurs in the liver. The other portion is increased lipolysis, which supplies those fats to the liver. And guess what? Niacinamide, by converting it to NAD, restrains excessive lipolysis. I emphasize excessive. It does not inhibit baseline lipolysis. Insulin mm. does, but not niacinamide, not NAD. It will, so if you're too much lipolytic, it will lower them. And I think, I, I don't know if you sent you the article where single low-dose niacinamide, I think it was 100 milligrams, dropped triglyceride levels by 75% in humans. So wow. that means it's rapidly, because most of the triglycerides are coming from the fat, right? Either you ingested, but these people were fasted. So which means most of the fatty acids were coming from the fatty tissue. And if you're decreasing the triglycerides by that amount, which means you're probably inhibiting lipolysis by about 75%. Does, does the aspirin... I know aspirin inhibits lipolysis too, but does, does. Inhibit, does it inhibit baseline hypolysis? Um, that, I don't know if it's been studied. Uh, it's possible because uh, uh, it's known that aspirin in very large doses uh, becomes starts to mimic insulin. Uh, basic, and that's one of the reasons why they're using it uh, back in the day when they didn't have insulin isolated. If somebody shows up in the hospital with diabetic ketoacidosis, one of the treatments they had was very high dose intravenous uh, uh, infusions of sodium salicylate, which is just a just an analog of, of aspirin. So they were using it in lieu of insulin. And since insulin can suppress baseline lipolysis, chances are that very very high doses, not something that I would try. And by the way, it was by IV; it wasn't oral. So I think they were giving the equivalent of the nine grams. That we discussed over a period of a few hours through, through IV, and that was acting like insulin. But in the regular doses, I think the one that we're discussing here, no more than a couple of grams daily or just a few tablets daily, I think it's still re- related to excessive lipolysis. You don't want to inhibit baseline lipolysis too much because you remember at, at rest, muscles, your muscles, muscles rely on it. Yeah, so you don't want to starve the muscles. 
And what's the primary fuel source for the heart? Is it fatty acids? At rest. But then at once you start exerting yourself, the, the, it's because the beta oxidation process is too slow to basically meet the requirements. When you're exerting yourself, the, the heart starts to demand glucose. And one of the most successful ergogenic products on the market is the drug meldonium, mildronate. This light. And the meldonium, the way the way meldonium works is restricts the oxidation of fat and allows the heart to use more glucose. So, but it only works as an ergogenic aid when you actually need it. If you're at rest and you take meldonium, it's not going to give you more energy. But if you're running, let's say if you're running a marathon or you're doing a, a tennis match, unsurprisingly, tennis players used to abuse meldonium before it got banned by the World Anti-Doping Association, WADA. Uh, tennis player Maria Sharapova, meldonium being a former Soviet drug, was using it. And basically, when you're under exertion, it increases your uh, your threshold to failure, so so to speak, by about 30 to 40%, which is huge. So if you're playing a several-hour-long tennis match, right, um, you know, being 40% more resilient or quicker or more energetic, of course, can mean a difference between uh, winning and, and losing. Okay, great. This is phenomenal stuff. So I want to progress to the hormone of darkness, <laughs> admittedly, supposedly, <laughs> which is melatonin. Uh it's a bit intriguing because it's gotten a lot of publicity and it seems to be really good. But but here's an interesting thing. It's an antioxidant and, you know, foundationally, it could contribute to the reductive stress that we talked about earlier. Absolutely. So, yes, ind independent of its role in augmenting sleep, because there's two roles. One, I mean, actually, it's connected because it's pineal gland secretes it at night when you're in darkness, if you had bright light exposure in the daytime and you didn't see blue light before you went to bed, um, then you're going to get it. But still, that's only 5% of the melatonin your body secretes. 95% of it is made in the mitochondria, subcellular mitochondria, or subcellular melatonin, and in response to near-infrared light, which is just an amazing, amazing, powerful nutrient. I think it should be a nutrient. You know, there's, there's like, we talk about all, you know, all these, these supplements and nutrients, but sunshine has got to be part of it. I mean, there's just no way around it. And, you know, I look at the vitamin D level as a biomarker, assuming that you're not swallowing vitamin D, it's a biomarker for sun exposure. And for longevity and for many other things, the, oh, yeah. uh, the most reliable predictor of future development of something like multiple sclerosis is for how long you are vitamin D deficient. There's an almost perfect inver inverse correlation, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, inverse correlation between latitude and basically, and, and rates of multiple sclerosis, with the rates being the highest in the Scandinavian countries and going down to virtually zero around the equator. Yeah, but that's correlation. It's not causation, of right. course. And I think the correlation is there because it's sun exposure. Sunlight, yes. I don't yes, think yes, you're going to get the same benefits, autoimmune benefits, if you're getting if you're swallowing. You may get something similar, and a lot of the vitamin D researchers believe that. I suspect there's some truth to it, but it's, it's going to be far in excess if you get it from the sun. I haven't swallowed vitamin D in over 15 years. And I just had my blood test back from vitamin D last week. It was 99 millimoles per nanomoles per liter. Um, so, But yeah, you live in Florida, right? I live in Florida and I am uh, obsessive about getting out at sun and yeah. solar noon every day to get into the sunshine. It is absolutely crucial from my perspective. You got to have that. Don't have to, but it, it really, uh, because you're getting 70, 70% of the solar radiation is ultra or near infrared. Did you know that? 70%. Yeah. 
Yeah. Some people said, I mean, it's been known in the electro, uh, the, 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 the industry that produces electricity from the sun. They're saying like, look, if we're only using the photons to produce the electricity. We're actually wasting most of the sun's energy because it's mostly in the infrared spectrum. So right. we're going to get more energy by trying to heat things up with the sun instead of converting the photons into electric energy. So yeah, most of it is that we get is heat and the invisible infrared spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, the near infrared doesn't heat as much as the far infrared does. So I think more most of it's in the near. So the, I mean, definitely you can get. I mean, there's a. I had one. I actually still do in my house. I have a, a solar water heater, uh, and it, so I don't use an electric heater to heat the water. I use that, but uh, I don't know if it's as efficient. That's that's the issue. But anyway, it's, it's a tangent. So I'm wondering uh, what your th- the thought the thoughts are, melatonin, because. But those aren't familiar with melatonin metabolism, we talked about the negative impacts of tryptophan. It's like not a good amino acid that you want to have large amounts of. But tryptophan gets converted to 5-hydroxytryptophan, which is also called serotonin. And serotonin is a direct precursor for melatonin. So I don't think anyone's in disagreement that we need melatonin. That There's no dispute there. But the concern, and the, it's sort of the confounding variable, the, the difficult thing to, to reconcile between those is that we want to minimize tryptophan and serotonin, not good things. We'll have a serotonin discussion, not this time, but in a future interview. Uh, but how do you reconcile that with melatonin? Is it, is it the conversion that's, that, that's the issue? Is there, is there some crucial enzyme that's responsible for converting it? Because if you did have low serotonin, you're not going to make melatonin. Exactly. But here's the thing. Healthy people are known to have higher levels of melatonin. But the production of melatonin from serotonin depends on ATP. So once again, it's ATP. Yes. Oh, the it's ATP. not the yes. enzyme. It's just simply ATP. Oh, no, it's a cofactor. But if you if your metabolic rate is not good, if you're not taking so that's, that's the, right? that's the bottleneck is ATP. Yeah. So so healthy people mm. can convert. And actually, since serotonin is not good for you, there is a theory out there, hypothesis that melatonin is kind of like the protective version of serotonin that puts you to sleep, because serotonin puts you into torpor in a very non-restorative, kind of like shallow sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, hibernating animals have it. They're, they're half awake, right? But they're not. They're neither asleep nor awake. So if if you don't have the melatonin, you're going to build up serotonin, and that's really bad for your sleep and bad for your overall general health. Now, however, taking more melatonin, depending on, I think I will be really careful with the dosage because I, I'm seeing supplements on the market selling 5 and 10, even 50 milligrams, oh, where you produce about 500 micrograms. For, for 24 hours period. People recommending 100, 300, 400 milligrams of melatonin. Wow. Yeah, I'm I, telling I, you. That. I think that's obscene. So here's what happens if you take that excess. By the negative feedback pathway, you're going to be basically inhibiting the enzyme that converts the serotonin into melatonin because the body says, oh, I have plenty of melatonin. Don't give me more. And our serotonin starts to build up. And if your monoamine oxidase enzymes are not working properly, and even if they are, if you build up a sufficient amount of serotonin, you're going to get terrible nightmares, which are identical to the nightmares that people with post-traumatic stress syndrome have. And they're known to be treatable by serotonin antagonists. So if you take too much melatonin, you will build up serotonin, and that's not a good thing. But if you're deficient in melatonin and you take a physiological dose to recover it to the point where you sleep well, you'll be in a better position than not addressing it at all. That is magnificent. Exactly what I was looking for. Man, that is great. How and by that? proper dosages, so you sleep well through the night. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, of course, hypometabolic people will have less melatonin, more serotonin. 
But if a hypometabolic person takes too much of a melatonin, they're going to raise the serotonin even more, right? And you're going to end up in a situation where they, they don't sleep well. I've taken higher dose melatonin and the dreams are just absurd. And it's it's okay. really, you wake up like shaken up. <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting because I heard you say on another podcast that a, a, a common source of nightmares is high cortisol levels. So, you know, which activates tryptophan hydroxylase. Yeah. Oh, is that the reason it increases (laughs) serotonin? I didn't know that was a mechanism. They they all go together. It's basically part of the of the stress field, which helps you survive at the expense of your uh, functioning as as an optimal functioning as a human. This is so I knew this would be an unbelievable compilation of, of material and knowledge that you're transferring. Estrogen activates tryptophan hydroxylase while simultaneously suppressing tyrosine hydroxylase. So when you're under stress, you're going to need more serotonin, less dopamine. Conversely, when you're in a good health, happy and, you know, gregarious, more dopamine. And dopamine is an inhibitor of tryptophan hydroxylase. So you're going to get even less serotonin. It's really kind of like a feedback cycle. If once the good times start and you maintain them for a while, they become self-propelling. Once the bad times start and they continue for a while, they also become self-propelling. Well, perpetuating. Perpetuating, yeah. Yeah, so the, uh, I'm sorry to correct you, but I am always impressed how literally 15 years ago, you probably didn't even know English and you're so articulate and able to communicate these complex scientific uh, concepts into into material that we can digest and understand. It's just amazing. You're just an incredible human being. So um, one of the things we skipped over, and I think we have some time for now, is uh, protein, because you're really cautious about uh, certain amino acids, and I think rightly so. I think we need to keep that. You know, the protein levels down that you quoted earlier are really pretty small, and actually they're not. Those are much lower than is recommended to build muscle mass. I mean, typically it's like twice that level, but you still want to keep the total dose down for most people below 120 grams a day. But I, I personally kind of shoot for 120, but you're, you were advocating 80 or so. And that's interesting to know that, you know, people could do well with that level of protein. Uh, But anyway, the specifics of the protein are methionine is well. So I want you to talk about the methionine, how it's well correlated with a decrease in longevity because it has some negative impacts. And then there's other amino acids like like the tryptophan and cysteine that are problematic also. So one of the ways that you can address the methionine, because certain healthy foods like eggs and beef, at least the muscle meats, uh, are high in methionine. So if you, I personally add like seven, eight grams of glycine to the, to my eggs and my beef to, to mitigate that methionine. And balance it out. And I didn't realize that glycine was an inhibitory amino acid. That's nice to know. But the uh, so, and, and then you also mentioned the branch chain amino acids, which is really good anabolic because it activates mTOR with leucine and isoleucine and the valine. But uh, the branch chain amino acids can actually inhibit absorption of tryptophan, I believe you said. And methionine. Oh, oh methionine. Okay, didn't well. know that. Okay. Yep. And aspirin. Even, even another reason to take aspirin, it inhibits the, the absorption of methionine, cysteine, and tryptophan from the food. Really? Yeah. 
So do you think that, and what type of dosages would it do that? Is it like- Oh, probably just a single tablet because the reason I found the study is that they were studying different type of phenolic molecules, which aspirin is a type of molecule like that. And they found that they're widely distributed in nature, virtually a lot of food, especially grapes. (laughs) Speaking of grapes again, oranges, pears, apples, right? They have it, but it's usually, they're usually in the the skin, in the, the, which a lot of people peel and throw out, but that's where actually most of the benefits are. So anyway, so if you eat phenolics, a significant amount of them, and they're saying that the average daily consumption is in the several hundreds of milligrams daily, which kind of tells me that about the same amount of aspirin should probably have similar effects, except mm-hmm. that it's taken as a single tablet versus uh, you know, spread out throughout the day, which is what the, the phenolics in the diet would be. So maybe take a baby aspirin with each meal, which would come down to you know slightly over 200 milligrams, um, and then you will be ex- inhibiting a significant uh, amount of the of the absorbing a significant amount of the, of these inflammatory amino acids from the food. Wow! So you think a dose as low as 80 to 100 milligrams of the aspirin with yeah. the meal itself would be enough to inhibit the absorption? If you take whatever, I mean, let's say you're eating three or four times a day, that means about 250 to like 300 milligrams of aspirin daily, which is about the same as, as the amount of phenolics we'll be consuming from the food. And by the way, we're still consuming those phenolics. So all yeah, you're so doing is, is you augment it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. So what do you think is the ideal dose for of aspirin for most people and other specific subsets of individuals who would benefit from a higher dose? So for they call it primary prevention, right? Of cardiovascular disease, yeah. the the baby aspirin is probably enough uh, for cancer prevention. And, and wait, will... let me let me stop there. Oh, sorry, she said that. Yes. Is there a dose of the aspirin that is optimal for blood thinning, as opposed to other other metabolic? Yes, doses? lower doses, paradoxically, of aspirin, uh, pro- basically prolong. The the, uh, the they they increase the prothrombin time, which means they they promote they thin the blood and and make you more prone to bleeding. Um, a lot of a lot of research has been published trying to demonize aspirin and how it increases your bleeding risks and whatnot. And a lot of doctors are not recommending because of that. But I have multiple studies showing that aspirin yeah. prevents you from dying <laughs> from severe bleeding events in the gastrointestinal tract and the brain, which is precisely the reason most doctors are saying don't take aspirin because it can kill you from a bleeding stroke or like a bleeding in the gastrointestinal tract. It, in a higher dose, of, which means a regular tablet, 325 milligrams or higher, aspirin actually decreases those risks. So you can think of it as a bleeding modulator. At a lower dose, it will thin the blood and maybe prevent a heart attack, right? But at a higher dose, basically, it still prevents the heart attack, but not so much through the uh, 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 coagulation mechanism. Mm-hmm. But because probably of the prostaglandin inhibition and, and reduction of inflammation in general, which is well known to be the primary cause of these plaques that are causing the heart attacks to uh, start with. So it causes it, it 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 blocks it at a more fundamental level. Exactly, prevents them from happening. Versus yeah. you already have the plaque, right? You're concerned the plaque will rupture and, and plug a vessel, right? Then the small amount of aspirin, the baby tablet, is probably the best way. But to prevent those plaques from forming, I think the higher doses of aspirin, which is a regular tablet. And by the way, not not every day. For cancer prevention, a study showed that if you take aspirin three times a month. It's enough. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> three times a, uh, one tablet, 325 milligrams. A couple of times a month, couple, two, three times a month, I think was the uh, okay, don't, so, was enough. But I don't think that's optimal. I think. Yeah. It's not optimal. No. No. So, but you, it will provide some benefits. So that's relief in case for those of you who tend to forget your supplements. But for if someone who's really interested and can really be compliant with any regimen, what do you think for someone who's healthy, the, the dose of aspirin should be? 
I will take a regular tablet of aspirin daily. And if you skip a few days because you forgot, which comes down to, let's say, so just, five days out of the week, it's probably so just, enough. Just one a day. Okay. Yeah, one a day. Exactly. And and potentially divide that up. I, I kind of like the the powdered aspirin. It's, it comes with a little scooper, and each scooper is like 100 milligrams. So uh, you could take that with each meal. You could take it with each meal or like make yourself a nice solution of, let's say, orange juice and aspirin dissolved in it. Yeah. Maybe heat it up a little bit. It'll be a little tangy, even more, and drink it throughout the day. Do you think there's any benefit to taking it at night before you go to bed? Because you know, said you said it inhibits lipolysis. And I'm wondering, yeah. you know, you're, you're fasting essentially at night. Hopefully you're sleeping for eight hours. So it's an eight-hour fast. And the tendency is for your glycogen stores to become depleted. But my guess is if you're healthy, you've got enough glycogen in your liver where that's not going to be an issue. But if, if 70 to 80% have liver disease, their glycogen oh, okay. level stores are, ter- are okay. terrible. So aspirin right. is great, great so, for improving so sleep. Would that would that be better? So here here's my my proposal for an optimal for, for most people is to take maybe 100 milligrams or baby aspirin with each meal that has a lot of protein. Mm-hmm. And then before you go to bed, take one aspirin to inhibit so the, the lipolysis. So basically, if you're taking it throughout the day, you probably don't need to take it at night because aspirin metabolizes into salicylic acid. Oh, and and salicylic acid half-life is like a 30-some-odd hours of yeah, half-life. Okay, so, okay, so you'll so be okay. It doesn't matter. Okay, so that's why that's just, this is a refinement. So you also posted a study on your blog about, it was from New England Journal uh, in January of this year, where I think that the dosage was a baby aspirin twice a day was equivalent to inter- or subcutaneous heparin for for clot pre- prevention. Yes, in, in, a, in a surgical. Uh, they, they call it they call it non non inferior. <laughs> I love this term. Yeah, not yeah. That you know you know what that is. It's a click because I went to medical school. So you know what that is? That's a double negative. Yeah, exactly. So the confuse is like, what, what do you mean by it's non-inferior? It's totally fucking confusing. Yeah. 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 People, like, but people remember the inferior. So they say, oh, aspirin and inferior, the same sentence. Uh, I'm going to go with heparin. Yeah. Right? That's what they, they, they love doing that. That makes them think they, they think, makes them think they think that makes them look smarter, you know? Yeah. It's but I think it's a, it's a thinly veiled attack towards aspirin by trying to put into people's minds the idea that, look, aspirin is for grandmas, you know, it's an obsolete drug. We have <laughs> the modern nice stuff now, which, by the way, did you did I send you this article that the Zarelto trials were fully fraudulent? Not wrong. Fraudulent. Which, which, which trials? Zarelto, which is the, the, the flagship blood thinner that they use now for like uh, AFib and for preventing strokes is uh, uh, XAR. Uh, What's the brand Zer- name of it? Is that Zarelto? Is the uh, 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 Saban is the name? Oh, geez, I never Zarelto heard of it. is the. I've never heard of it. I, I don't prescribe these drugs. So I don't know. Yeah, they're not. The, the, so they moved away from heparin to the Zarelto type of drugs. But then there was an article in Slate, Slate.com, which is like a really kind of like an investigative journalism magazine. Used to be much better than this now, but anyways. Oh, yeah. So they said FDA, most of the clinical trials were done in Mexico and other places. FDA knew that the trials were fraudulent. They weren't simply substandard. There was based on made-up data. It still approved the drug. And when the journalists started questioning the FDA, why did you approve it? FDA said, if you don't stop questioning us, we're going to throw you in jail. <laughs> I don't know how that can work. But anyways, aspirin is non-inferior. To any of these blood clotting <laughs> <Not> drugs. <laughs> I don't want to say superior because the FDA will come after me and say, yeah. who are you to make health claims? <laughs> yeah, so about, it's about not irrational, you know, if you're a doctor, because this is a common, common scenario, as I'm sure you're aware of. People who have a stroke are put on prophylaxis or have a stent for a coronary bypass, uh, or they're going to surgery like the study did, uh, that they're going to be put on uh, this 
DBT prophylaxis, and they usually use heparin or these other Eliquil. I think is the the other one that's Eliquis. Eliquis, yeah, Eliquis. Yeah. So, which is seems to be the more common one now. So, and then pla, plax, plavix, plavix, plavix. Yeah, plavix. Plavix, yeah. Which is interesting. There's a woman who is an MD PhD out of Stanford, Barbara Starfield, and I wrote an article based on her studies she published in JAMA in 2000, July 2000, 23 years ago now, uh, that I abstracted from it, the mean, the doctors of the third leading cause of death. And that was that was actually my meme that I created. And uh, the irony and the reason I mentioned here is that she died 11 years later in 2011 from taking Plavix, which is a <laughs> from bleeding from a bleeding event yeah yeah it's from wow. plavix so she died from the very article that she helped promote you know the doctors with bleeding cause of death uh so anyway the, the point here is that there's a lot of options out there but plavix being one of them so you think that it's reasonable and relatively safe to consider a baby aspirin once or twice a day I don't know of a single person who died of taking aspirin. I mean, I've looked at the case studies. Well, but I mean, they, scoured PubMed. But, but it's not the diet of the aspirin. The, the, the concern is, was that going to be enough of a prophylaxis to prevent dying from the stroke or a, a clot somewhere? Absolutely. Yeah. Basically, the uh, I mean, uh, to this day, I don't know of anything that provides the same benefit as, as baby aspirin for primary prophylaxis while having equal or, or fewer side effects. Nothing come close to aspirin, except possibly vitamin E, which is very similar in its effects. So another supplement that should be taken pretty much by everyone every day is vitamin E. But there's a lot, we talked about this in our first podcast, actually, our first interview, is that um, there's some specifics you got to be careful of. Like the dose isn't really high. You you know you want to get the right stereo arsenal, which is the dextro, not the levo. So you don't want DL or the racemic version. And you want primarily alpha because there's alpha, beta, gamma, delta. You want primarily alpha. So you want all isomers, and you want that, and you don't. And you want some some tocotrienols, but not as much. You know, it's yep. mostly L, DL, tocopherol, and small doses too. I mean, not 400 units. We're looking at like 100, 150, somewhere in that range. And then I, I remember that you did a lot of work on this and actually came up with a vitamin E supplement because uh, based on Ray Pete's work, because Ray Pete was doing his, his work on, he was a big proponent of vitamin E, but it was a very specific vitamin E, one that was extracted from wheat germ, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and wheat germ has uh, some problems. I forget that. I, mean, I think it's really- 62% linoleic acid. Yeah, I was gonna say, it's really high in linoleic acid. Yeah, so you don't want you don't want to take wheat germ oil. That's for darn sure. <laughs> but in small dose, you know, that's a confusion too, because like a, like our vitamin E supplement is, is from sa- sunflower. And, you know, sunflower is really high in linoleic acid too. But people say, oh, you can't, it's not linoleic acid. Well, you know, it might have like a few milligrams. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, exactly. doesn't have 20 grams. <laughs> yeah. You know, a few milligrams is not going to hurt you. It's it's the, the vast, it's, it's a very, it's probably less than 1% of the linoleic acid you take in a day. So anyway, that's a diversion. But, but some, a lot of people have questions about some of the supplements and you know, if they have uh, a, a seed oil in there or because, you, you know, you've got to get the vitamin E from somewhere. So it's typically from a seed oil. Yeah. Uh, that's where they're at. You're not, you're not, because you don't want it synthetic. You want it derived naturally. So are there any other pearls and vitamin E that generalizations that you can make on how people need to consider taking that as a supplement? Because I think almost everyone benefits, you know, lot, largely because it's it's going to limit the oxidation of the PUFAs to the dangerous metabolites like 
malondialdehyde, like 4-hydroxynonanol, you know, the things that really cause the damage. So it's not that the omega-6 linoleic acid is dangerous by itself. It's the metabolic byproducts, the degradation right. products are so toxic. That's what kills you. Yeah. And linoleic acid, by the way, even its non-peroxidized form acts very similarly to estrogen because of its unsaturation. Oh, I did not know. Leave it to you to leave another pearl. I did not know that. And so increases the, the permeability, the fluidity of the bilayer oh. lipid membrane. And all six cells, especially cancer cells, are known to have drastically increased membrane fluidity. Yeah. They're very easy to permeable in and out. So that's not a sign of well, and then we talked about earlier cardi cardiolipin. Uh, if it's it's one of those fatty acids in the tail, it's going to increase the likelihood of susceptibility. And and my guess is once it's in the mitochondria, it's going to con contribute to that reverse electron flow, which Precisely. is going to shut down metabolism Precisely. and increase reductive stress. Yes. So if you damage the the cardiolipin because it's got a lot of PUFO, so it gets peroxidized, cardiolipin cannot bind with the complex four. So that complex is now dysfunctional. Even if all the others are working, then you start getting a buildup of electrons. And eventually, the the basic the, the 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 mechanism says, okay, they can flow in only one direction now, backwards, right? Because forwards is is uh, is blocked. All right. So um, you you yeah. revised yet another concept they had about linoleic acid that it is toxic in and of itself. It's not yeah. just the metabolites, which are what do you say is worse, just the, the linoleic acid by itself or the metabolites? The metabolites are worse, definitely, because they're directly mutagenic and carcinogenic. Okay. Uh, however, linoleic acid itself is dangerous in a very pernicious way. Um, by itself, it doesn't directly, immediately cause problems, even though it can get metabolized into the arachidonic acid and the prostaglandins and leukotrienes. It, th this process takes a little time. But linoleic acid by itself, because of its structure and the multiple double bonds, synergizes greatly with estrogen. So you can actually cause, in animal models, cause cancer by injecting physiological doses of estrogen that normally would be even healthy. However, if they're combined with a sufficient amount of unsaturated fats, I think they tried linoleic acid mostly, but other saturated fats did the same thing. Linolenic was also not as not as procarcinogenic as linoleic, but still similar. And the EPA and the DHEA. Omega-3, 18, 18 carbon. Yeah, omega-3 were actually the most carcinogenic, but they had the side benefit, quote-unquote, that they peroxidized so quickly, they couldn't exert their cancer <laughs> potential quickly enough. <laughs> but yeah. their peroxidative byproducts were also carcinogenic, so we're still getting the benefit. So yeah, yes. so so, so vitamin ideally, will protect that. That exactly, vitamin e will protect that, and also vitamin E has been shown to uh, also uh, have a, an antagonistic relationship with estrogen. Um, one of the first, the reason, the name of vitamin E, the, one of the common names is tocopherol, which means pro fertility, right? In in Greek, so they knew back in the early 20th century, even before that, that given people at the time was wheat germ oil, but it's very rich in vitamin E, that it can actually improve fertility in both males and females. Subsequently, it was found that vitamin E is the main factor for that, and it's capable of binding and blocking and acting as an antagonist at the estrogen receptor alpha, and it's also a moderately strong aromatase inhibitor, all of the of the, uh, the tocopherol isomers, not so much the tocotrienols. Um, so basically, by taking vitamin E, whatever estrogenic effects are out there, even from non-peroxidized PUFA, or if you're producing too much estrogen for whatever reason, if you have endocrine disruptors, which are capable of binding and activating the estrogen receptor, just as like estrogen does, tocopherol will, will, will block some of that as well. Wow. It's really a versatile molecule that has genomic steroid-like effects, but it mimics progesterone, which is also the main anti-estrogen in the body for females, testosterone and the hydrotosterone being the main anti-estrogens in the body of males. Tocopherol will have most of these effects, and it's probably 
much fewer side effects than taking steroids. Um, and the, the daily needs have been shown to, cor to correlate perfectly with your intake and also storage of polyunsaturated fats. So the daily need, RDA, real RDA of vitamin E is about two milligrams of vitamin E for every gram of PUFA consumed. Wow. Uh, which means if you're taking 50 grams of PUFA, you need 100 milligrams of vitamin E to combat basically its its peroxidative potential and also estrogenic potential as well. How much? So most people are used to measuring the vitamin E in units. And basically, if you take the vitamin E dosage in milligrams and multiply by 1.5, you're going to get the um, the, the wow. dosage in, in international so I, I would I, I only have like six, five or six grams of PUFA a day. So I would only need like uh, ten, ten. What is it? Five or six? Or so, yeah, less than fifty milligrams of vitamin E daily, which is like twenty, thirty IU's a day. Is there any danger taking a higher dose than you no. need? Uh, well, it acts like aspirin. It can thin your blood to the point where you basically could become a problem. But I've never seen a person that there's a there's these famous researchers in Canada known as the Shoot Brothers, oh, and they sure, were treating yeah. people with vitamin E, massive doses, I think like seven, eight grams of mixed tocopherols daily. Um, uh, and they were treating them from, uh, you know, diabetes, heart disease, various other different conditions. And I, based on their publications, some of which are peer-reviewed, not all, I don't know of a single case of a person who had like a serious negative experience with vitamin E, but it does thin the blood. So, you, you know, it may prolong bleeding time. Okay, perfect. Wow, that's really, really helpful. And since well, estrogen it, clots the blood, yeah. I think we can actually use yeah, yeah, that yeah, little yeah, bit of extra vitamin sure. E. <laughs> yeah, the other thing too is that you, vitamin E is a fat-soluble vitamin, which means it's stored in fat tissues. So you don't have to take it every day, right? Yep. And that's the good thing because most of the PUFA is stored, right? If, if when you eat a, a, a meal that has a lot of fats in it, they're usually a mix of monosaturated, polyunsaturated, and saturated. Ideally, it should be mostly saturated, but, you know, let's say eating a mixed meal. The saturated fats, because they're more easily uh, passed through the process of beta oxidation, they're preferentially oxidized. The monosaturated and especially the polyunsaturated are predominantly stored in the fatty tissue, which means that most of your fat stores are PUFA. That's exactly where you want your vitamin E to go to protect that PUFA from getting peroxidized. That where, that where it does go when it's absorbed, it goes into the adipose cell and, and next to the the PUFAs? Yes, uh, well, I mean, it goes precisely into the, into the uh, and actually it can build up in the lipid bilayer of the cell, which is basically going to be made mostly of fats. So that's where it needs to be in order to prevent Perfect. the reactive Perfect. oxygen species from damaging it. Yeah. Wow. All right. But so, so yeah, so you that's good because you won't have the, the dangerous meta, metabolic byproducts, but you still don't want PUFA because of primarily because of the uh, reductive stress. The reductive stress and, and also and, the PUFA itself being estrogenic and anti-metabolic in general. Do you, and pro-inflammatory. Do you think the reductive stress from the PUFA is the primary reason for obesity? Yes, that they're the primary anti-metabolic factor in our diet that changed dramatically over the last hundred years. That's what I thought. Yeah, okay. Plus the endocrine disruptors, which act remarkably yeah, similar. Yeah, it doesn't help. <laughs> it doesn't help. So yeah. let's call it this way. PUFA is an endocrine disruptor of natural origin. We have other <laughs> ones. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So would would you include glycine as an essential supplement to nutrient like vitamin E and the niacinamide and aspirin? Glycine together with methylene blue are the only two ingredients that I've seen showing full reversal of the aging phenotype in human cells, but it was in vitro <laughs> studies. <laughs> what what type of dose am I? Because clinically, it seems like you need grams. I'm talking millimoles. Five, 10, yes. 
yeah. 10, so, 15 grams per day. Uh, the, the dose, the, the study that I showed in vitro, I think showed three millimoles per liter concentration, which in humans is achievable by about 10 to 12 grams of glycine daily, which mm-hmm. means two tablespoons of gelatin will probably do it. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Because I mean, gelatin is like one third glycine, I think, because the rest is is proline, hydroxyproline. So that's another good point. Thank you. Good segue. I didn't have that on my list, but I think this is another one of the essential supplements people should be on that we're pretty much all in agreement. Niacinamide, no question. Um, Aspirin at the dose we just discussed. Um, blue. Well, then methylene blue with the cautions if they're taking SSRIs. Methylene blue for sure. I think it, in some, I mean, it's not that one's better than the other. You need them both. Methylene blue and niacinamide is a one-two punch unless you're taking an SSRI, no methylene blue. Or get off the SSRIs, and you can with the strategies that we talked because it's, you know, when you're coming back, we're probably going to talk about serotonin and cancers and stuff. But serotonin, it's easy to control it once you implement these strategies. Maybe not easy, but the strategies are there and they work. They're effective and you don't need drugs to, to modulate your serotonin. Although you have some really interesting, you know, I have not gotten into the supplements you sell on your site now, but uh, it's like, it's like you've got like, it's a wizard's apothecary, apothecary. You've got like these that don't exist anywhere else in the world that you created in your lab that you need like a drop or two of these things. And it's just like, oh my gosh, I just got the five, for, talking about serotonin, it's the five, 10, 10, 10 methoxyharmaline, which is like essentially an analog of LSD that uh which worked on serotonin right it, oh by the way it's a metabolite of melatonin we produce it really? internally it's a, yeah, it's a direct metabolite of melatonin i did not know that but it seems to be fairly effective in like one to three drops a day for someone who's on an ssri and then get off the ssris yeah so if you look at the molecules serotonin melatonin and 10 methoxyharmaline are almost identical basically the melatonin molecule with an extra molecule of hydrogen becomes 10 methoxyharmaline and because they're so structurally similar they can you know bind to to each other's receptors serotonin having seven receptors or more that we know of melatonin i think having like one uh, three m1 m2 m3 oh another reason i forgot to mention the reason i a little bit wary of taking more melatonin is that uh, some of the newer very successful antidepressant drugs that are still in animal research are melatonin receptor antagonists so no! there's something about mel- <laughs> something about melatonin at higher doses, which I think is except it's expected. It puts you to sleep, but a really deep sleep. And the way it does that, it lowers the the oxidative phosphorylation in the brain, which can oh, be great. helpful at night when you're not active. Right? You want to be sleep. You want to recover. You want to be careful, and, and you want to spare as many resources as possible. It's not good during the day, but and it, it, people that are basically depressed, they're known to be sleepy. They're known to be tired all the time and they're, you know, fatigued and whatnot. A lot of it is from serotonin. But if you have high serotonin, this means that by extension, probably they're going to have elevated melatonin as well. So the it's, it's anti-metabolic. Yeah, it's anti-metabolic. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and they found that these drugs also, which we kind of expected, they relieve depression, but they also increase the metabolic rate, which to us is one and the same, right? So yeah, depression yeah. is a sign of low ATP production. Uh, study with insects. I know a lot of people say, well, insects are not humans, but it was replicated in rodents and various other animal models. Demonstrated that you can, that basically the, the, the there's a spectrum, continuous spectrum between very good health and really violent homicidal aggression at the other uh, end of the spectrum. And it's all controlled by ATP levels. 20% drop of ATP levels in the brain will make you depressed. 
another 20% will make you almost comatose. And then another 20% will get you to a really violent, aggressive phenotype, which, by the way, the SSRI drugs have been shown to cause. And what do they do in the brain? They lower the levels of ATP. Um, so, yeah, there, there's there's some um, revelations that are going to come out soon about SSRIs. I think people know about them, but I mean in the legal system. People are going to start suing. Some of the mass shooters, are uh, the victims of the mass shootings have bended up together and said every single mass shooter in the United States has been on a psychotropic drug. 90% of those cases have been uh, one or more SSRI drugs. It cannot be a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, then you, I think you mentioned several times. It's, I think it's still in phase three clinical trials. This Pfizer is coming out with a new drug that's a serotonin antagonist. Yes, thurgoride. Yeah, for treating uh, yeah, cardiac failure, which they 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 up until uh, even now, medicine says is irreversible. It's a progressive condition which eventually kills you unless you get a heart transplant or pulmonary fibrosis, which is also terminal, and you cannot get a usually you cannot get a transplant for that. So they're saying thurgoride by blocking the serotonin receptor QB is able to not stop, reverse the fibrosis. Interesting. Wow. Uh, we're going to dive deep into that later, but I've got a question, just a, a curiosity question. I'm sure you know the answer. Sure. With uh, a popular biohacking intervention that I'm not too fond of, I tried it initially, but it, it's very painful. It's called something called cold thermogenesis, where you jump into a uh, an ice bath, you know, would be sort of the extreme, but, you know, certainly you can use lower temperatures, 50, 60 degrees, even, uh, obviously if you're in a, an ice bath for too long, you could die. Uh, but the, the reason that many people, um, encourage it or recommend it is because of an increase in dopamine. And I, you know, it just seems to me not a wise strategy, but maybe I'm confused. And I, I'm just really curious as to what your take on is from a metabolic perspective and if there's any harm or damage of definitely harm and you, you, your intuition is always almost always on the right track it evolved for four billion years i think if we listen more to our intuition yeah, yeah. of course backed up by data it's better than simply following some abstract reasoning so the reason called so first of all called thermogenesis it raises your term uh, the 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 not the baseline the peripheral temperature by increasing the release and synthesis of adrenaline. Now, of course, it's going to raise your dopamine first because dopamine is the precursor to adrenaline. Oh. <laughs> but it seems like a rather torturous way to basically, first of all, you're going to raise dopamine, but not much will stay as dopamine because it will quickly get converted to adrenaline. And that's what converts the white fat into the brown fat. Oh. And the brown fat is more metabolically active. And the mm -hmm. proponents of cultural say, hey, it's going. these fat cells are going to burn more calories. They're going to consume more of its right. own fat. That's, that's so it's great. Yeah, the only that's what they do. Yeah, but guess what? Other condition has the exact same process: metastatic cachectic cancer. Ah. Patients <laughs> with cachexia have almost no white fat left. They're almost entirely brown. First of all, they lost a lot of it. They look gaunt, right? Oh, but okay. the exact same process, driven by adrenaline, causes is implicated in the cancer in the cachexia of cancer. That is an exact same process in cold thermogenesis. So it's a stressful response. Why on earth would you want to cause yourself more pain? Now, no pain nor gain. I can kind of agree with it, but it does not mean that more pain is going to give you more gain. So you don't think it's really good for anyone that with that with that answer it might sound. I, like it. 
I would say it would be better if you move to actually a, a very warm <laughs> <laughs> environment, high in up in the mountains. <laughs> yeah. Island, Florida. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Florida, and you're going to be burning more calories without stressing yourself to the same level. Now, extreme heat is also a stressor, but not nearly as dangerous as extreme it's cold. Not extre- it's not extreme heat. And then they've got these AVAs, these arteriovascular anastomoses in the, in the soles of your feet and the palms of your hand on your forehead. So that if you're walking in on the beach and your feet mm-hmm. are in the ocean, you're dissipating all the heat. So you, exactly. you have no, no issue with heat stress. Yep. It's, zero. it's like elephants, they have big ears for only one reason. That's their dissipating yeah. mechanism for heat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, and I don't and I live in Florida, but I live in like well, north central Florida. So uh it gets too cold here in the winter. You can't go in the water. So I I go south. I go to Central America or Mexico. <laughs> so, so really, Florida gets water. so cold uh, that it cannot go into the ocean in the winter? Well, you could if you want to do cold thermogenesis. Yeah, the water goes <laughs> okay, into the no, no. <laughs> 60s, high 50s for sure. Oh, wow. Now, South wow. Florida is probably not as bad, but it is it is up here. So I just don't go in. You know, So it's like six months out of the year. Going. I mean, it's like in the mid 80s now, which is good. But, um, oh, man, that is good stuff. Um, I don't want to follow up on it. Cortisol? Should we talk oh, no, about no, cortisol? No, no. And I can, no, no, okay. no. The, 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 uh, the finish just finished up with cold thermogenesis. So that the, the, con- the conclusion I had reached prior to your, your comment on this, which is different now, but was that it was okay for people if you were young. You could, they could, because they could tolerate. Oh, sure. The they could tolerate. They had much course. more resilience in reserve yeah. than the average person. Yeah. So it, what, the intuition was spot on, but it really isn't good for anyone. Which is interesting because you know there's so many people. I mean, there's a lot of leaders in the in the biohacking space, and they're, they're almost every single one of them are strong advocates of cold thermogenesis. One which, one of the established methods for aging animals prematurely is to expose them chronically to extreme cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the other thing they don't get is that cortisol elevation is the primary reason. That's where every strategy should be directed at lowering cortisol. Mm-hmm. So what? So what are your thoughts on meditation as, as an effective way to address lowering cortisol? Because there's a lot of people who recommend that. I, the I expert meditators of- have been shown. I've seen studies with the monks in Tibet and whatnot. Mm-hmm. They're really good at controlling their their physiological response, mm-hmm. uh, but that takes decades of practice. Okay. Um, I think for a lot of people, it's become a fad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I po- I posted a study showing that if you're an inexperienced meditator. And if and um, you know basically you're doing this for several years, and if you have some spe- if you have some uh, mental problems that are not addressed, meditation can make them worse. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, apparently, it was well known among the meditation community. They call this coming to Christ moment, or you kind of like mm-hmm. you're facing your problems without any bias and somehow working through them. However, that study that I several studies I posted on the blog showed that in some people, meditation actually could generate uh, mental health problems de novo. They got mentally ill by meditating, uh, especially the more extreme forms of meditation that uh, practice like extreme fasting or like under extreme temperatures or in extreme environments. But um, I think meditation in the uh, just as like like aspirin or meddling blue, if you know what you're doing and there are not many people that do that or at least get, paying attention to what you're doing, it can be helpful. But it, it's not the cure-all that is being presented and I'm kind of concerned it's becoming another fat. Everybody that I know around me says, oh, you're under stress? Meditate. Well, I mean, if, if if I'm working a toxic job or I have like, a, I don't know, I'm surrounded by toxic people, meditation is not going to address that. It's just another Band-Aid, right? You have yeah. to always work for the ultimate cause and try to resolve it. Granted, sometimes it's not easy to resolve, so you kind of have to, you kind of have to Band-Aid sometimes. There are things that are, let's face it, there are things that cannot be directly resolved. 
but for most things, yeah, go ahead. It it would seem to me you can modulate a lot of the stressors if you, if you focus on increasing your metabolic rate. Precisely. It will be much more direct in a physiological way. Because once your cortisol level goes down, doesn't the stress decrease? Of course, by definition. I mean, the, the primary feeling of agitation and nervousness and basically the fight or flight response that's driven by cortisol that is that is its primary role to kind of keep you alive whether it's somebody chasing you like a saber-toothed tiger a million years ago or you're in an office with some toxic people and somebody's yelling at you for no reason the exact same situation basically the body perceives this as a threat and says okay since you're not eating right now right i need the energetic resources to handle this threatening situation where are these calories going to come from 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 your body well, I've, I've uh, exhausted my questions for now, <laughs> but I'm definitely going to have you back. We have to have a really long-term, dis- long discussion on cancer because that you, you, and I know you've done some original research in animal studies and you've got some really novel approaches that absolutely conflict with my underst- previous understandings and people I've interviewed in the past who are experts. So I'm really looking forward to that discussion for sure, but uh, I can't thank you enough for your commitment, your dedication, your knowledge, your willingness to share all the time and provide such a wealth of knowledge and information that's going to radically change people's lives. So you. you're BA, you're beyond awesome. You you took like a few months off this year because I don't know, you were busy or something. But oh, until May, I'm a government contractor. I think I told you and, uh, yeah, yeah. When, it, when there's a project, I get, I get sent to the client side on a government agency and I, I basically all day there. When I come back, yeah. I have family to deal with, so it's not exactly yeah. a, But they, yeah. these articles accumulate, so I read on a daily basis, yeah, but yeah. I just can't post on a daily yeah, basis. So, yeah. so there, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely, lovely resource. I'm so glad you compiled it. So, All right, so that's one place for you, and then uh, we'll keep that's, posting. That's pretty much it. I'm, I'm on Twitter as well. Twitter, oh, yeah. Twitter.com oh, slash Kato. Twitter, Twitter is, is there anything on Twitter aside from your blog post? Uh, I mean, sometimes I interact with people. They send me some interesting studies, okay. and okay. Uh, I comment on those too. So it's like a what's your, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, same as, as the blog Haydut H A I D U T. So okay, Twitter.com slash Haydut. Okay, perfect. All right. Well, thanks so much, Jari. Appreciate it. All always, right, well, always a pleasure. Great honor to be on the, on your podcast.